Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Wednesday, December 19th, 2018, starting at 3.28 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 185th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic, and we're going to be answering some questions from listeners of the podcast that have been submitted over the course of the past few days. Uh, for more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, hey guys, thanks for joining me. Long time no see. Hey. Hi, yeah, I missed you guys. A, it's been a month. Long it's been time. a month. We, yeah, and we were doing like a lot of episodes back to back together, especially when we were doing the Zodiac series for that, those two months. And then suddenly Austin left the country Austin and we had a long us. gap. Yeah, so so we're partially doing this episode to separate it from the forecast episode this year where we're going to talk about the entire year ahead of 2019 so we can hear about Austin's trip, catch up on some other stuff that we've been working on over the course of the past few weeks since we last recorded an episode in mid-November, and also answer some questions from listeners of the podcast that largely came in over Twitter over the past few days since um, Twitter astrology on Twitter has really exploded over the past year or so. So, um, first, where should we start? Kelly, uh, you have one thing coming up. You just discovered that you're like speaking in Seattle soon in January, right? Yeah. You know how you think, oh, that's happening in January. January right. is ages away. And of then like 2019. 2019. Like, that's a whole pe- other year. Yeah. People will be riding like hoverboards by then. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then you think that's three weeks from now. And it's like, Oh, okay, Seattle, here we come. Um, So I'm doing a full day workshop for the WASA group, uh, Washington State Astrology Group there, uh, on relationships in astrology. So we're going to do natal chart, you know, how do we work out what relationship patterns and stories and experiences are, but also timing. You know, what does it look like in the chart when you have a major relationship event like a breakup or meeting someone or, or, you know, all the iterations of, of love. So that'll be really fun. Brilliant. Yeah. People should, especially if you live in the Washington, Seattle metro area, like take this as an opportunity to go check out the WASA group. Cause I've actually run yes. into a surprising number of astrologers that live in sort of close to Seattle that either don't know about that group, the Washington State Astrological Association, or just haven't visited yet. So this would be a good opportunity for them too. Totally. Yeah, it's quite an active astrology community there in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, if you are able to get there, they're a wonderful group. They meet monthly and they have speakers throughout the year. Uh, They do a few different workshop events. So yeah, I mean, of course, I'd love it if you can come in January, but if you can't, they will still be there in February and March and throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. And I've noticed there's a few younger astrologers that express like not going to things due to like social anxiety, but I'm hoping that some some astrologers in that sort of younger generations try to push through that and like start attending some of these local groups because it's part of what keeps the astrological community vibrant is those are sort of like the staging area for astrologers giving lectures and then eventually going to bigger conferences and giving talks as well. So it'd be good to keep those vibrant. A hundred percent. Yeah. They're like, um, well, the the grassroots connections with community are they're really helpful. I know when, but I understand where the the new people coming in feel because when I was nineteen or twenty and went off to the first astrology meeting in Sydney, uh, I was probably the youngest there by many, many, many years, 
And I definitely felt out of place, but I was just so interested in the subject matter that that kind of connected me. So the awkwardness is real, but if you can still connect anyway, it'll be so good for your astrology experience. Yeah, definitely. And and this actually came up recently in a discussion about written reports versus like verbal consultations because I forgot that a lot of newer astrologers they start off doing written reports because that's actually more comfortable if you're still like getting your sense of like how to do delineations for people that sometimes people feel more comfortable writing out like a 10-page delineation or what have you versus like setting up a time to talk to another person. I've been trying to encourage people to make that transition to actually like talking to clients verbally because you both sides really get a lot more out of it. Did you guys do written reports ever or did you always do verbal consultations first? I did verbal first, um but mm, I early days of being of like being like I'm uh early early days of trying to be a full-on professional astrologer, I kind of thought I was supposed to do uh written and I kind of went back and forth about that. Um, okay. I don't know. Because you were doing I, the horoscopes right from the start, right? Um, or like writing some column? Because I, I always knew you from writing the the Baron column. Y- yeah, that was. Um, I was doing readings before that, but it was that column that um, sort of transitioned me into being a professional astrologer because people would email me and say, "I want a reading." Right. So, um anyway, yeah. So, but I would I would obsess like crazy on trying to write the perfect report and it took me, you know, I'd spend like 6 hours uh mm. on them and not be happy and so I quit doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think did Kelly, did you do written reports at any time? Oh, yeah, but I I somehow missed the bit where I thought it was something we were supposed to do and I was just I'm such a chatterbox. I was just happy to talk with people <laughs> about astrology, uh, which is what I had always wanted to do. But I, di- I used to get a lot of requests. And actually, even today, I still get requests, maybe only a couple every six months. But people do like the writ- – like clients do like the written report. But I, I, I used to do a couple of them maybe in the first three or four years of my practice. And then like you, Austin – I was just like, this is taking, it wasn't efficient. It took so long that, you know, the amount of hours you put into writing the report versus having the conversation about the information in the report, it just from a business sense, I was like, this isn't viable. I I would sort of have to charge you like five times the price of a, of a consult if you want me to write it up for you instead. And of course, nobody wants to pay that. So... Yeah, I yeah. I also find that, or I I also one of the things I found difficult about a written report was that I wasn't aware of what the person was understanding and what they were not understanding. And when I'm writing, you know, when I'm in dialogue with someone, I can say, you know, if you get that, then I can add this to it. And then if you get those two things, then I can make this point to make sure that the person is seeing what I'm what I'm pointing at. Um, but there's a little bit of just. I don't know, writing into the void. Mm. Um, and I think that's particularly the case for a more general chart reading. If um, And I know some people do written reports for horary, and that makes a lot more sense to me because there's a very definite question. And you can say, based on X, Y, and Z, um, this is your outcome, right? Yeah. As opposed to like, the you know the entirety of a life described by a natal chart where it's like i don't know what do i say what do i not say there's you know this is a novel 
Yes. Actually, and that's exactly, I should have mentioned that. I used to do written reports when I did horary consults for people. I would do them written for exactly the reason that you're saying there, Austin. It's very topic specific, situation specific. You know, what is the outcome of this situation? Which is easier to summarize in 500 words than, as you said, at a person's entire life. It, it's 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 not even a novel. It's like a three-part series or something, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that makes sense for Horry because Horry, it's just like a few paragraph response. But with Natal, you know, um, I, my, my belief, I think, is that most younger astrologers need to push themselves to move into doing consultations verbally, and they'll they'll look back on it and be thankful that they made that transition. Every professional astrologer I know is thankful that they did eventually make that transition because of those three points because written reports just take so much longer to do and you need to value your time and the more consultations you do the more you will eventually start to value your time and therefore almost feel like doing written reports is a drag because it takes so long and it's such a burden it takes so much longer than it needs to or than it should um yeah. two dialogues allow for immediate feedback so you learn and grow faster as an astrologer by actually, you know, if if you say something and it really hits with the client, they'll tell you. If you say something and it's like not quite there, then you'll hear that as well. And that's really important as part of your growing and learning process instead of just like talking to a wall or talking to your your computer and then sending it out and not fully knowing how it's hitting. Um, and then three, it's better for the client because then they can ask you questions that they may not have thought of. Prior to the consultation, so they actually get more out of it uh, than a written report. Ultimately, completely, completely, and I, I, I agree with every point you said, Chris. And I am on the same boat. And in addition, I also know it's a lot scarier to think about sitting down with a client in the beginning when you're kind of new. So I'm like, I know it's scary, but it's okay. You, you're not going. You like still do it, even though it's really scary because. It is the fastest way to accelerate your astrological development is to sit in the session with people. And if you have a lot of worries about getting it wrong or saying the wrong thing, set yourself up as an apprentice astrologer. Let your clients know that you are doing you know, the final stages of your training and you want to have a dialogue with them. Maybe you charge a little bit less. There's a number of ways you can take some of that internal pressure that you feel. Your client's not feeling that pressure. They are just desperate for anything that you can share with them. And it doesn't have to be a super complicated configuration or, you know, dignity, stability situation. If you can just tell them, you know, what their moon sign is, what their ascendant sign is, some of those things that we think are so basic to somebody who's never heard about them before, they're absolute eye-opening, massive, you know, insights. So, I think sometimes we get in our own way a little bit, and uh, I agree. Get, get into the consult room as soon as you've got enough knowledge under your belt, basically. Yeah, and and everybody has some social anxiety going into it, except for like the most maybe extroverted person. But even then, you would. So I don't not relate to that, but it's just something that would be good to push through because you're both totally. going to improve yourself more as an astrologer. It's going to benefit you as an astrologer more in the long term as well as your clients. So that's my soapbox yeah. about that. Totally. Side I love note. our sad yeah. so we haven't even got, We haven't even gotten to the like. <laughs> I'm also, Q&A we have or, to ask Austin what he's been doing. We need to talk. And I, I just wanted to mention briefly, I meant to say at the start of this, if there's anybody that wants to jump forward to different questions or like parts of this episode, there's going to be timestamps in the description page uh, on the Astrology Podcast website at theastrologypodcast.com. So 
that uh, frees me from getting any hate mail from people that don't like our long and like winding style that we're definitely going to be doing this episode. Today. Yes. All right. So we should warn people at the start, we're doing this to do long and windy now. So when we do our year ahead forecast, there's no long and windy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Few other preliminary things before we get to one of the main things I really want to hear about, which is how <laughs> Austin's just trip hear went. From Austin. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I, I'm not putting it. I don't want to put it off too much because I, I just want to give it the time that it, it deserves as a follow up to the last forecast episode, where was... we sort of just like opened with that and jumped right into it. Yeah. All right, Austin. Do you have anything that you're you, you want to mention or promote at the top of this before we get into some of that? Oh, I suppose I do. Um, I also have a Patreon. I write stuff. Um, I'm going to be, I will publish my my big year to come piece at some point before the year turns. I've been thinking about it for a couple months now, and I've got a few decent ideas. You'll hear some of them during our next episode. People can support me on Patreon if they want to support me. Um, we do fun stuffs like, fun stuffs. Like, uh, like meetings is, um, <laughs> and people get, uh, people get all 30 days of my monthlies, uh, at once in a PDF at the beginning of the month, rather than having to wait for them to come out on Twitter or whatever. Um, I'm finally going to release my podcast next week. I know I've been talking about that and awesome. I've been, I've got a few episodes in the can now and a few more planned. I was going to maybe do it tomorrow, but I can't do that and everything else. But there's a, there's some decent elections next week as well. So I think I'm going yes. to do that. Um, and will that be posted on your website? Yeah, I'll make that if you know if you follow my website or um, me on social media, then you know I'll do that. Oh, okay, I think so I'm- AustinCopic.com for those that don't know. Mm -hmm, yeah, just my name.com. I do think that what, I'm, what I am going to do with tomorrow's election, which I like- um, is I think I'm going to start an Instagram account. I'm not sure <gasps> if I'm, I might hate it, but oh my god, I love this. <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll see. I can always delete it. Um, you can, and you know what? Instagram loves pictures of your cat. I feel like Kate's got that covered. You know what? There isn't that many pictures. I'm sorry, she does let the team down on that front. Kate's doing some great things on many fronts, but there are not enough cat pictures. Okay, well, so. Um, if I feel particularly moved, he, he yeah. does he does pose very well. Yes. Um, and then I'm doing a, I'm figuring out what my class schedule is going to be like next year, what I'm going to teach, what I'm not going to teach. I One, one thing I know I'm going to teach, two or two things I know I'm going to teach. One is I'm going to do, uh, a, for the first time, a year two sequel to my year one fundamentals. Um, so that'll be fun. That'll be more focused on well that'll be like timing methods and remediation and a couple other things and then i'm actually going to teach a class on um the relationship between tarot and astrology uh, which is something wow. I've, you know i've i've been doing for 20 literally 20 years now um but never really taught before so that'll be fun um, and I believe I need to check my emails, but I believe I committed to giving a, a local talk here in Ashland, Oregon. Um, I want to say January 20th, something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that was, uh, that was confirmed. <laughs> nice. 
So I'll nice. probably do that. Um, <laughs> so the Pacific Northwest is still a hotbed of of astrology. It sounds like. Yeah, we're. I mean, you know, you got to remember, I'm eight hours from Seattle here, and I'm five hours from Portland. I'm yeah. as I'm as close to San Francisco as I am to Portland. So it's you know this this town was literally built as a railway stop between Portland and uh, and San Francisco. And so it's it's kind of not the Pacific Northwest, but it is in that corner of the map kind of yep right all right uh oh my gosh like austin's gonna join instagram <laughs> yeah so let, let us know if you get before i release this episode send me i'll put the link to that to whatever your instagram like hash name ends up being not hashtag but your okay. name ends up being i'll put a link to it on the description page for this episode okay Thanks. All right. Brilliant. Uh, so, and and the last thing before we get into everything that I needed to plug is I actually went ahead and did my 2019 astrology calendar posters again this year. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it, but uh, Paula Bellomini and I came up with some designs and they came out so well and so many people were asking about them that I decided to launch it again. And I've been sending out orders over the past few weeks and sort of like slowly rolling it out. But I think this is the first time I've actually announced it on an actual episode of the Astrology Podcast. So I just wanted to let people know that that is out there and you can find out more information about them on theastrologypodcast.com slash 2019 posters. And you'll see the whole description and ordering and everything else. Have I I sent you guys ones yet? I guess I did for last year, but not this year. I I haven't received ones. I mean, you might have sent them and they could be in the post. Canada Post is partially on strike right now. So... So the one I'm most excited about is the Planetary Alignments poster, which shows it's just like the normal artwork I use for the, you know, the monthly forecast episodes, but it shows you all 12 months and it tells you when planets change signs, the exact day there will be a lunation, when planets station retrograde or direct, so you can track things like Mercury retrograde, and it's just super, super useful. So people can find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com, and that is it for my plugs, I think, and all of our plugs for the beginning of this episode. So let's get into it. So Austin, we heard your Mercury retrograde saga uh, recounted in in detail at the beginning of the last forecast episode, which we actually recorded before you left town in mid-November, but I didn't release that episode until later in the month when you're already like halfway through your journey or like right in the thick of it. So let us know for for people who 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 haven't heard anything about that or have not been following you on social media since mid November. What was the outcome of that? Did you make it to Australia ultimately? Yeah, I got the passport. Um, yeah, that um, th- that there was a happy ending to that that uh, pre retrograde nightmare. Um, the retrograde, you know, with transits, there's always. Um, so, so it was with, the the positive retrograde version of the like you just had to push through and there was like setbacks and obstacles but through perseverance you did did eventually things did pan out positively. Yeah, through great expense and expenditure of energy um right. and micro heart attacks. But the, the you know the Mercury was retrograde during pretty much the entirety of the trip mm. and there were some either were elements of that which were entirely expected. In the sense that, oh, this is my first time in this hemisphere. I've never been here before. I don't know how things work. Some disorientation is to be expected. Um, however, that you know that retrograde stationing as it did square Neptune and in its detriment and square Mars, multiply affli- 
multiply afflicted was pretty fast and furious. There was something there was something pretty much every day. Um, the internet doesn't work here. There's a problem with the you know with our international service that we got for the phone, so we can't call the Uber. This flight is late. This thing is off schedule. Um, when we were when we were recording the uh, the So Below event, which I went down there uh, for the uh, the event in Melbourne with Gordon White and I, um, one of the cameras that was recording I think went out three times <laughs> in the middle. Oh my of it. goodness! Everything there were multiple cameras, so you know it, it actually um, it, it got stitched together beautifully. But there was just there was just something almost every day for a while, and you know it, it just it made me reflect on the fact uh so when you when you have a planet that's that's iffy right like mercury um having all that going on and being retrograde when you place yourself in mercury's hands by you know traveling internationally and then being in a city where you don't know where anything is you don't know how things work you need to call cars to go anywhere etc cetera, etc cetera. you know you 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 very much placed yourself at the mercy of mercury yeah. And so I was just, you know, that it was, it was a way of leaning into it, which um, uh, I I wouldn't, I don't regret it because the timing was correct for more important reasons, but we definitely had to pay the toll. You know, Mercury took his little, little pound of flesh just about every day. I did hear some stories about Uber situations and bags being forgotten in places and people not being where they needed to be and then not being able to get in touch with them and late night situations. It's yeah. so funny because it seems like the Mercury retrograde, we talked a lot about the perseverance aspect, but it's like this fine balance between perseverance and like pushing forward despite obstacles to overcome them, but also sometimes just like letting go and realizing when some things are out of your hands and you just need to like allow things to happen however they're going to happen. Yeah, well, yeah, you have to. Someone's just letting <clears throat> letting things not go according to plan. So mm-hmm. one thing that that happened again this time that's happened to me during several other Mercury retrogrades um, is okay. So here here's here's one. So on the plane ride over, which was seventeen hours, um, I figured I might be able to get a little writing done, right? And um, the uh, there there was a there's supposed to be an outlet um, at my seat that I could plug my laptop into. Well, there was an outlet, except that the just my outlet, the outlets uh, in Kate and I's seats were broken. And so I couldn't charge my computer. And so I was like, shit, I have I had uh, a month of uh, of dailies and I had a, a piece, a monthly piece about the sun's time in Sagittarius to write. And so I ended up writing them or I ended up writing the sun and Sag piece in a notebook by hand which is something I've had to do during other Mercury retrogrades. And it was not at all what I'm normally doing with the monthlies. Usually they're pretty structured and forecasty with like, you know, some metaphor and hopefully some insight, but they're, you know, more calendrical. Uh, Whereas this one was not even trying to do that. It was taking a single theme and going off on it. Um, And it was uh, a piece that people, many people told me they absolutely loved. And that's happened to me before during Mercury retrogrades, where I I literally I was going to say go off book, but off keyboard, um, and end up needing to write in a book, and it's a you know it's not what I'm normally doing piece wise, but it ends up being something that really hits home. Um, so that that that's one example of a one of the 
one of the things that happens during Mercury retrogrades where it works better if you abandon the standard plan. But, yeah. mm. you know, Ad- I, I, adapt, stay flexible. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, so we spent a week in Melbourne, a week um, north of Auckland in New Zealand, and then a week um, on a farm in southern Tasmania. And I actually have, uh, I still have a, a farmer's tan. Oh my gosh, you, you totally you do. I got, yes. uh, I got absolutely fried in Tasmania. I didn't know about the um, lack of ozone. Yeah, and so I was just sitting on the porch yeah. with Gordon. We we recorded a podcast, maybe two and a half hours, um, <laughs> and I got, I just got absolutely fried in my right arm. The whole thing peeled. It was, oh. it was kind of actually. So on the way back, again, you know, you got a lot of time to think on the plane. Um, it occurred to me. Uh, so one, the uh, this trip was, you know, in part business. Um, in, in the sense that there was an event down there, uh, that we set up, which went beautifully, by the way, um, we ended up, um, sticking, you know, maybe 50% astrologers, 50% wizards in the same room, um, made them listen to us for a couple hours and then gave them all the wine and beer and food that they could handle for the next four or five. Um, and I think that there was some, some gelling that, that happened that we hoped would happen. Um, but I, and, and anyway, so, you know, obviously I went down there for that, but I also uh, went down- really quickly, the recordings of which are available on Gordon's website, runesoup.com, right? Well, so we, uh, we kept the recording as a treat for his premium members and my Patreons. And okay. so we've got a uh, audio video full recording, um, for anybody who's, you know, um, decides to be among the, the privileged few. <laughs> nice. And I, I saw on like Twitter and stuff that you got you met a lot of astrology podcast listeners that I recognize from seeing like online or from Twitter or Facebook or other places that you actually got to meet in person. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was I got to see some a few a few old friends. Um, shout out to Cassandra. Um, I got to meet yeah uh, podcast listeners. I also got to meet um, uh, one of my students in my yearly class. Uh, shout out to Scarlett, who's been waking up for my 11:30 a.m. pacific time class in mm. australia which is that's a depending on the time zone or depending on daylight savings that was either a 5:30 or 6:30 a.m. class i had no idea yeah uh, but she'd been waking up and attending all year round so that was great to meet her nice um yeah quiet dedication who who doesn't respect quiet dedication right um Solid. But yeah, I, I, God, I met so many people. Uh, it was such a whirlwind. Um, but what I was going to say is, so I, what I was, I had a point with my, my horrible farmer's tan, um, is that, I, you know, I went down there mm, as partially a reward for making it through the absolutely shit transits that I've had this year, which have been nailing my perfected planet, which ended like two days before I was due to fly down. And, um, the, the trip was in many ways, exactly the medicine I needed, um, which, you know, I had a good time, but it was, it, it was the, the, the last few days there that I, that the, um, the changes I hoped for internally started taking place. And it was really interesting to note that, um, the North node is exactly conjunct my ascendant and Jupiter, uh, has been for the last couple of weeks. And I look, oh, I look down and I'm like, you know, I'm literally shedding skin. 
Mm. And I was, you know, it's as a serpent sheds skin. And yeah. I was like, and I haven't, I haven't, um, I don't really go out in the sun. Um, not that you could tell. Um, but I, I haven't, I haven't had a sunburn. I, I, I literally can't remember the last time I had a sunburn. I don't think I've peeled since I was a kid and, you know, just ran around all day in yeah. the sun. So it was just, it was really interesting. And, you know, one of those, you know, it's not something that you would predict as an astrologer. Be like, yes, you will have an important sense of, you know, entering another phase and leaving old things behind and your skin will peel on the same day. But yeah. that's how it happened. And that's like, you know, you, you see the the uh, the serpent symbolism of the nodes right on the ascendant descendant axis and physically resembling the serpent, you know, at that moment. It was pretty. Yeah. It was a nice way to conclude it. But uh, I don't know. It was a it was a huge and wonderful time. And, you know, uh, thanks, of course, to Melbourne and Auckland and and uh, Jeeveston, Tasmania for hosting me. And thanks to uh, Aaron Cheek for hosting me in New Zealand and uh, Gordon White for hosting me in uh, in Jeeveston. Brilliant. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, you got to see a lot of cool people. And oh, yeah. Catch up catch up with a lot of people. I mean, Aaron Sheik edited my book, Hellenistic Astrology, of course, and Kelly, I don't know, you may be working with him at some point in the not-too-distant future. Yes, yes. Aaron and I are going to do a book together too. So, And yes. he's actually also publishing Demetra's book, which they are yes. in the process of trying to push out this month and doing some final last-minute uh, editing and, and sort of things on, but it will be out in the next few weeks. And I have an interview with Demetra that's actually in the can that I'm going to release as soon as the book comes out, I actually recorded last month, uh, but hopefully that'll be out pretty soon. Awesome. And you got to meet Saturn in Capricorn while you were with Aaron, I think. Yeah. With so Gordon. Like, Aaron lives in this. It's um, so it's hard to describe. It's like he lives in this thing that's sort of a former retreat center that sort that is functioning as an artist collective slash small organic farm. Um, there were, there were rock and roll musicians there. There were painters living there. Um, he was, uh, uh, there was a documentarian there and then there's, you know, Aaron, the, uh, the independent, um, book publisher and, uh, scholar of alchemy. So it was, it was a pretty wild kind of mix. Uh, he just said that he had a room we could stay in. Um, but yeah, there was a super angry goat named Timmy there. <laughs> And I went and I went a few rounds with Timmy. Kate got some good um, Timmy footage. Timmy just basically tried to headbutt me in the nuts over and over again <laughs> for about ten minutes straight. I didn't notice the nuts part, but I did see. Well, him I, I didn't. I, I it's strategically like he was going for your legs or something. Yes, I strategically relocated my nuts so yeah. as to uh, probably smart. Yeah. Those horns looked pretty menacing. Yeah, when they were a little, I was he would do this kind of little side move, and I was like, yeah. mm, that might be a little stabby. Um, yeah, I don't think I want to get stabbed in the the groin or loins anywhere in that region. But it was fun, you know. I I I, I don't have enough contentious goats in my life, so. And there were some very fancy chickens. I'm not sure what kind of chicken were they were, but they were much fancier than normal chickens. Much prettier. Yeah, much prettier. Gordon has chickens, but they're kind of the stupid normal kind. The regular kind. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad you got to just be with the wildlife and the animals. Oh, it, yeah, it was awesome. Um, but I'm, I'm, 
I, I got back less than a week ago and had to hit the ground running like literally the next day on write all day, work, 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 work. And so I don't think I've really processed everything yet. Um, no. There's a, I have like 20 emails that I'd like to write to people, be like, hey, it was really good to meet you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, that that's fine. That um, If you're one of those people, um, it's not that I didn't like meeting you. It's just that the last month has been just an absolute tsunami of experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, something you said, Austin, I thought was a really good sort of Mercury retro point. You, you sort of said, yeah, it was there. We had to pay the toll to Mercury, but there were larger reasons, you know, bigger other things going on that made it important to still go. Because uh, I think a lot of the questions we get about Mercury retrograde, it's like people have drilled down onto just the Mercury retrograde instead of, you know, what else is happening because that other thing that's happening might be larger or more significant and directing you and you just need to deal with Mercury as part of that process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I went there for Jupiter reasons. Yes, and exactly. I, I knew that even though there was the square to Neptune and the, and the square to Mars, that Jupiter, Mercury would make it back to Jupiter. Yeah. And I was like, it's fine. That's that's what I need. And so, you know, no, uh, all all Jupiter goals were achieved. Uh, it's just, you know, paying the, the Mercury price along the way. Definitely. Well, that sounds oh, great. What One thing I will say. Um, so Melbourne, I think, has maybe the best that, that that was the longest string of consecutively amazing meals um, yes. of different cuisines I've ever had. Like wherever we went, no matter what kind of food it was, it was fucking amazing. Um, what a good food city that, yes. by the way, set my standards for Australian food in general way too high and the rest of the trip did not uh <laughs> did not did not quite uh didn't, didn't deliver didn't live up to it no no but so one i just want to say one more thing just about on the mercury retrograde and the trip thing you know it it's the you know australia and new zealand are part of the anglosphere you know everybody speaks english it's not that different but it's it's like somebody kicked reality and it's 10% different and because so much is the same the 10% that's different is really disorienting yes um, but anyway well, yeah, yeah yeah go ahead oh it is i mean when you were describing you know the paying the toll i was like oh yeah cuz the cars are on you know the cars go down the other side of the street basically so I know when I first came to Canada, I felt like I was like in a tennis match when I was trying to cross the road because you don't realize how unconscious and instinctive, you know, which way you look when you cross the road, for instance. Um, and then to, to have to constantly be correcting, it does take a little bit more mental energy and that piece where everything is mostly the same, but a little bit different. It's more discombobulating than when things are just completely different. Right. Cars driving like the other way down the road is a great metaphor for Mercury retrograde. I really like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the seasons are opposite, right? Yes. You're like, right. oh, now the cars are driving on the other side of the road. Now it's spring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We flew for 17 hours in a tiny metal box and all of a sudden it's springtime. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And on the way there, um, you know, you basically lose an entire day, right? Yeah. We left on Monday and then when or we, we, um, the plane took off on Monday and then landed on Wednesday. Wednesday morning. It's like, okay, yeah. what happened to Tuesday? And Just then gone. what was fun was on the way back, you get it back. 
And you so you land in LA before you have actually left Sydney, like the time or Melbourne. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so from a yep. planetary hours perspective or planetary days and hours, um, I saw two sunrises on uh on the day of Mercury in a row. Mm, right. I your you know, two Wednesdays. Yeah. Yep. And we you know we were we we're up at sunrise because we had to be. Um yeah. and you know, interestingly enough, those were um fantastically productive writing days. <laughs> Yes. Oh, oh one so and another Mercury retrograde moment related to that. So the, the one car, more final thing. Yeah. The, well, related piggybacking on the, the cars going the wrong way or the opposite way. It's not wrong. Um, I got used to that pretty quick, but I kept looking for the driver. I, lo- I kept looking to identify the driver of a car yeah. on the right hand side and they're yeah. on the left hand. And so I went to, I, I went, I saw a cab and we needed a cab. So I went and knocked on the window of what I think of as the driver's side. And I'm like, hey, are you driving? You know, or hey, are you, you know, are you taking fares? And I was talking to a passenger who was sitting in the front seat because that's the passenger <laughs> side. And he just yeah. looked at me like, what? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks for the update. Uh, it sounds like a good trip, and people can check out the recordings from all of that, like you said, on on your Patreon or on Gordon's uh, private paid oh, and service our, for his podcast. Al- and also our 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 moderator Avalon um, Avalon um, Avalon's patrons also have access to the recording. So, and uh, Avalon's um, Avalon Cameron, I think um, I should know her last name, but anyway. <clears throat> Avalon's just such a memorable name. You remember that it and the is. rest doesn't matter, right? Yeah, the rest is, yeah. But um, yeah, she's got a Patreon and she does a lot of, I don't know, sort of practical witchery and is the creator of a tarot deck uh, and reads for people. So you can also get it through Avalon. Awesome. Great. All right. Let's keep moving. We have like 30 questions to answer today. Um, there was one other actually piece of news because it's been basically a month, and usually in the forecast episodes, I mentioned general community stuff that's happened. Um, there's actually a couple of major deaths that occurred over the past few weeks that I wanted to mention really briefly in this episode. Um, one of them was that Robert Schmidt passed away on December 6th, and he uh, had had a stroke actually in, in mid-November, I think on the 16th, and was in the hospital for a few weeks and then passed away on December 6th. He was Notable, of course, as being one of the founders or the the head architect of Project Hindsight. So he was a really important and influential astrologer for the whole traditional astrology movement and revival over the past 20 years. And he was actually one of my personal teachers that I lived with for a couple of years when I lived at Project Hindsight. And I know, Austin, you came out and had your first astrology conference in 2006 at one of the Project Hindsight conclaves that I invited you out to. Absolutely. Yeah, so that was a really big deal, and I've been processing that, and that's been a whole sort of thing over the past month. And then, sadly, just two days after Schmidt died, um, another major astrologer and leader in the community also passed away, which was Donna Van Toen, uh, passed away mm-hmm. on December 8th, 2018. And that was kind of a big shock to the community as well, because she had just finished like a really successful and probably one of the biggest. Um, it was the biggest. It was the yeah. biggest soda astrology conferences in like October, right? And you were there, Kelly. Yeah, it. Donna was diagnosed with cancer a few months prior to the conference, so 
I don't know that it was sort of publicly, it, it wasn't a secret, but it was, you know, if you were interacting with her, you, you sort of were aware. She's pretty outspoken on Facebook. Um, but the Soda event, um, so Donna started that event basically. It used to be a conference that ran in Toronto every year and for just cost reasons, she moved it across the border actually less than 10 years ago because the first time I attended SOTA in 2009, just after I'd moved to Canada, it was still in Toronto. I think the next year she went over to Niagara Falls and, and then to Buffalo. And it was a huge event this year. There was almost double the normal attendees and a huge amount of new faces. And a lot of the obituaries and comments that people have been writing about Donna referenced her great support of new and emerging astrologers. She would give anyone a go. You know, if, if somebody spoke positively on your behalf, you could get a lunchtime speaking spot at SOTA and, and test your metal type of thing. So she'd been very instrumental, I know, for myself and, and other astrologers, uh, but she's been active in the Astrology Toronto community for more than 30 years. She's a, a great stalwart here. So it was very sad to obviously to have her pass away and she went on her own terms and under her own steam, which is is so Donna. She's a very strong, forthright woman. Uh, but it, it was quite striking. I saw the news about Robert Schmidt having had his stroke and, and knowing that Donna was unwell. It just seemed uh, there's a it felt a little bit like this generational change and very sad to to lose some of those people that helped us get our start and and trained us in the beginning. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of what I've been processing because then at the same time I'm seeing just this like huge influx of like younger astrologers coming into the community through places that that were previously not as active like on Twitter. I'm just seeing tons of astrologers getting their start in their like teens and 20s like they're just coming out of the woodwork but then at the same time we're starting to see you know something I almost always kind of feared or like knew was going to start happening at some point but just like starting to lose some of the Pluto and Leo generation which is, has been like the established astrological community and has been many of our teachers since like the 1960s and 70s when that generation came of age and came into the astrological community and then eventually sort of took it over by the 80s and 90s some of them are starting to pass away and there's this real feeling of like a shifting of the generations that's weird for me to see being in like my 30s sort of in the middle of that yeah it and it reminded me i couldn't help but think back to uac this year where one of the wonderful things that uac does is they and i i might get emotional but that's just me um they do an in memoriam section where they take a, a moment, I, th I can't remember, if I think it's in the closing ceremony where they post a picture of all the astrologers that we have lost from our community. And it's a wonderful way. I know, Chris, you and I sat together for that this year. Yeah. And it's it's just a wonderful way of honoring that sense of belonging that you do have in this community. And yeah, the, the loss of Donna and, and I didn't know Robert as personally as you guys did, but I did know Donna and it just reminded me, you know, we do belong and we will, you know, mark those transitions, but there are transitions to be marked. And it's just, I don't know, it is interesting. Like it's just hard to put into words, I guess, that shifting dynamic that it seems to indicate. Yeah. Um, well, it's just good to recognize the contributions. I mean, mm. you know, and that's part of what I've been trying to do is, is just put together 
what I know and what I remember and to recognize the important contributions of astrologers. I mean, that's part of what I've been trying to do on the podcast in scrambling to get some of the interviews that I've been getting over the past two years because I just remember when James Holden passed away in 2013. Mm. I always meant to do an interview with him, but I kept putting it off and just never did it. And then he passed away and I realized I'd lost the opportunity. So part of the past years for me has been trying to get some of those interviews of people that I know so you can pass on some of that knowledge to people just coming into the community that don't know or haven't had that direct experience with some of these figures. Yeah, but Schmidt is somebody who hasn't been as publicly active in the astrological community over the past 10 years, but he, you know, without his work in translating ancient texts in the 1990s, the revival of Hellenistic astrology wouldn't really have happened and certainly wouldn't have happened as quickly as it did or made as such a huge impact on the astrological community as it did. So yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to be said there and I don't want to make this like an entire episode about that and I hope at some point in the future I can do some specific episodes to recognize the work of some of those astrologers more and go into it in more detail, but I did want to at least mention that that had happened because it was like a major sort of community event and loss. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I feel like we could keep going, but I know we we have other intentions with other comments, I guess. Yeah, but definitely. Yeah. All right. So with that mentioned and with uh, all of those sort of preliminary things out of the way, let's move on to what I guess is the main purpose of this episode, which is we put out a call for questions and we end up getting a lot, especially on Twitter because Twitter like I said, it's just become hugely active for astrologers over the past like year or two. It's just exploded. Um, and as a side note to that, I would really recommend if there are any astrologers listening to start an account on Twitter if you don't have one and start interacting and like adding some other astrologers there, just because there's actually some really great discussions taking place. And I know sometimes like in different communities, like people complain about, you know, discussions being too shallow or not good or or maybe even you know, promoting stereotypes or things like that, but I'm actually consistently more impressed by the level of some of the discussions that are happening on places like Twitter and other places online that I am disappointed. And it's kind of exciting to see that, especially with this new generation of astrologers just coming in. So we got a bunch of questions from them from Twitter. So we're just going to go through and try to try to bang out like a, a bunch of these as quickly as we can and hopefully not get stuck on them. They're all like really interesting questions. So we could easily get stuck on some of them, but we're gonna try to get through as many as we can. So should we start start at the top? Let's do it. All right. So the first question is from a Twitter user named at Saturn Sun Astro, who's actually new and actually just signed up. She I just recommended Twitter to her and she just started and is doing some amazing posts over the past few days, but she's a newer astrologer to doing consultations, and she had a question that was, I've always wanted to know how other astrologers approach consultations where the client is deliberately unwilling to participate in a dialogue exchange. What then is your method of approach? Working in metaphysical shops, this was often the case. So this is a really good question because this is actually something I discussed with Dennis Harness on an episode just a few months ago where that's a specific like type of a client that you will sometimes that all astrologers will eventually run into and there's different reasons for it i mean one version of it is the client that wants to kind of like test the astrologer and so they're kind of closed-lipped because they want to see if you can interpret their chart correctly without them giving any feedback or anything like that 
to sort of see how good you are or something like that. That's like one variant or one version of it, I think, right? There yeah. is that type, yeah. Yeah, that's... And so mm, you can usually... I mean, I I don't know about y'all, but um, I've kind of gotten a nose for that, whereas like, mm, I can tell that's, you know, that's what they're doing. And then you just kind of give them one thing that you couldn't have possibly known that you're correct about and then you know one or two and then they open up and you and then you can actually begin the reading um and that's different from somebody you know it sounds like you know people who are um in a more casual setting uh such as in a metaphysical shop where you might get people who you know are just just want some entertainment they have no they, they're not they're not veiling their sincere question with a test they're the entire point of the reading is a test they don't actually have a, a question or anything um and so i i haven't had a client like that in a long time and i at this point i would just refuse to read for somebody like i'm not your monkey you know I, i'm not like you don't just get to pay to see me dance like i i do a i do a thing where i'm trying to help you find answers to your questions and figure things out i'm um I don't know. I'm maybe I'm a prima donna, but um, I'm just no, like I mean, no. I'm just like no, like unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, well, it's partially it goes back to the thing we we're talking about at the beginning, which is the written reports thing, which is that a lot of people, especially clients, but sometimes even astrologers, sometimes don't realize that a consultation, the most effective way to do it, is when there's a dialogue, because then mm -hmm. that allows the astrologer to. Feel out the chart and like calibrate or recalibrate their understanding of the chart based on the way that it's actually working out for the person in their life to that point. So the astrologer goes in, they read the chart, they have a certain set of assumptions about what the placements mean and what this person's life should be like. They make certain statements and ask questions about the chart. They then get feedback, and that feedback allows them to calibrate their understanding of the chart and then to better fine tune. Not in a like cold reading sense. They're not like cold reading you, but in a sense of if you know the trajectory of something, then you're better able to make predictions about where it's going to end up in the future. And that's one of the sort of tricks to astrology, but that partially comes out through that dialogue process. And you can do it without the dialogue. You could make statements, but it's not going to be as effective or as, as good if that calibration process isn't sort of there or if that's not available to you. Yeah, like the establishing of precedents, right? Like where we're, you know, for example, okay, Venus retrograde in Scorpio does that every eight years. What happened last time? Or, you know, when you say it's, I find it helpful to know what something looked like up close and personal. You know, mm -hmm. I can say, okay, yeah, it looks like there's a, you know, kind of a shit show in your, you know, in your love life in, you know, August of 2015. And they're like, yes, but then if they tell me what that looked like, that gives me, you know, that gives me more to work from. Right. What do you 100%. think, percent. Yeah, I agree with what you are both saying. I don't think it's being a prima donna, Austin, just to say, look, this isn't the kind of setting that I'm looking for. I think it's just knowing your practice boundaries and knowing what you will and won't do. And once you're established in practice, it's easier to say, I'm going to turn this client away. In the beginning, you can often have that pressure of like, I'm trying to get my business set up. I should be trying to work with them. 
And so there can be some different energy behind whether you've got the confidence to turn that client away. Because I think you do get a nose for it and you can just go, this isn't going to be the right person. And I find I can even pick that up even just on email sometimes. And it's hard to be explicit about they said this or they asked this question and therefore it's not going to be a good fit. But you just get that feeling. Um, But then there's another type of client who can be reluctant to participate in dialogue because for for some of their own reasons where maybe they're unsure or they're a little insecure or they're just an incredibly closed book type of person. I was just going to say that. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely another kind. Yeah. So th- And that's part of the challenge is to figure out, is this person just trying to make me dance like a monkey and nobody wants that? Or is it just that it's their nature to be maybe more soft-spoken or to be more reticent? And in those situations... I tend to just continue with sharing, you know, some of the insights that I've got, which is not necessarily as deep as I could go if they were interacting with me. But I find somewhere around the halfway point in the session that otherwise reticent type of client can start to soften or open up. And then I'm realizing that's just whether it's shyness or nervousness from their end, they just needed a little bit more warm up time. And so at the point when they do soften and open, we drop in and we can go deeper. And I've just, you know, been able to share this, this normally manifests like this, or this can typically look like that. Um, so it's, it's getting the confidence, I guess, to sort of figure out what type of reluctant client are you dealing with? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And just that process of, of building rapport is like a crucial piece, especially early on in the consultation that you, you work into or you build, build into. And that part of the way of breaking through that then is that by starting to make some statements, once you do start to demonstrate and and make some statements that are accurate about the person's life as the astrologer, that's part of sometimes what helps to break through that initial reservation uh, that they may have. And eventually, as you get further into consultation, ideally, if things go well, then then it sort of smooths out even if they're a little bit more reserved at the start. Yeah, and that's yeah. so. Yeah, some people just want a few accurate statements, and then they're fine. And then some people, like like um, Kelly was saying, just need a little help coming out of their shell. Some people don't want to sound stupid, um, you know. And so I don't know. I just get very um, um, kind, supportive, cancer rising. <laughs> yeah. You know, we just right. do our water stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the, you know, I I can recall maybe one or two clients over the years where they just have not opened up in the entire session. And I just think, okay, I'll just, they're only wanting to come in at a certain level. I can only meet them there. And funnily enough, one of those clients then emailed me six or seven months later to comment on how much they got out of the session and how insightful it was. Even though at the time I remember thinking, I'm not even sure if they've enjoyed this experience. Right. Um, and so it, it's that, then that was my stuff of like thinking maybe they might have, you know, let me know how it was going, but they didn't need to. And, you know, later on it turned out it was it was just a, a wonderful thing for them. They just couldn't talk about it at the time. Basically. Yeah, I, I have those. Yeah, that's a thing. Where I'm like afterwards, I'm like, no, 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 I, I did. I did good, right? No, I, I'm yeah. pretty sure like- <laughs> did my job and you know did a good job i just you know sometimes you know it, it's much easier when you get the immediate response or someone's like that yeah. was amazing and you know you just it's very clear from the dialogue that was amazing um but yeah, yeah there a lot of times i'll have to just 
have a have a quick talk with myself after a session like that. Yeah. 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 But it, and, and so ultimately the thing is just trying to convey to them that or, or maybe just spreading general awareness in the astrological community that consultations work the best and they're the most effective on the part of both sides as a dialogue, but ultimately it's like it's your you, you have to tell the client that it's your time. So, you know, it's your time pal. So if you want to do this the most effective way, we can do it. If you want me to just talk at you without it being a dialogue, then we can do that. It's just not going to work out as it, as well as it could, but it's it's certainly up to the client. Yeah, and I, I tell people that pretty much at the beginning of every session. So right, yeah, I'm like All this right, is how so, to get the best reading from me. Yeah, right. All right, so let's let's. I think that's okay, good next, for that question. question. Let's, let's move on. We did let's, it. <laughs> if we keep this up, this pace, we will get through a few of them. Uh, we are now an hour into the episode. Uh, next question, just going down the line, is by. Um, at Marin Altman on Twitter. She says, business question, do you all make most of your income directly from consultations or is it through teaching and other passive sources? I love so, questions like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all love business questions because that's, of course, we make our living. That's our living as astrologers and we like you know our, our trade and our craft and it's fun sometimes to like talk about your trade with other practitioners and what works or what doesn't. Um, one of the points I made a few months ago with, uh, and actually before we move on with the last question really quick, I meant to mention yeah. episode 168 with Dennis Harness was the one where we went into that area a little bit more. So listen to that episode for more about the previous question. Um, about this one, Tony, Tony Howard and I talked about this a few months ago, and one of the points was that I do think most astrologers, their primary income is through doing consultations. However, I know the three of us have been doing a really good job, and it's definitely a crucial piece, I think, of most contemporary early 21st century astrologers, especially in our like generation group, to develop other like passive sources of income or other sources of sources of income besides doing consultations as part of your overall sort of like business strategy as a professional astrologer, right? Yeah, look, I I'm very late to the passive income game. So I that's only been a thing for me in the last couple of years. And I would highly recommend, like if I think what would I do differently, I would have worked on the passive income earlier. From the get-go for me, I was a real mix of teaching, writing, and consulting. So probably for the first 10 or I mean, it's only in the last couple of years I've done a little bit less writing and I've had more passive income. But up until then, you know, there'd be it was teaching, writing, and consulting, and that the percentages would shift a little bit. But it was, you know, it could be 30, 30, 30. It could be, you know, 40, 25, 25. Like it, it, it never. Sometimes I'd be doing a little bit more writing. Other times there'd be a few more consults or a few more teaching gigs. But I very much have earned from three different streams from pretty close to the start. Sure, and it doesn't have to be completely passive, but even the fact that you were doing a lot of teaching and that you would make money from teaching mm. is something you were doing to supplement and was a, a significant part of your in income besides doing consultations, right? A hundred percent. And actually, for me in the beginning, the writing was it was probably writing and consulting, and the teaching took a little bit to build up. Okay. Um, I had a conversation with Caitlin actually at UAC, and she was asking me a little bit about my origin or getting started story with astrology. And I was running it through with her. Do you remember this, Chris? It was very late one night in the bar. I do. And I was also just thinking in the back of my head, that's a bingo square from 
uh, the the bingo thing from. Is there uh, what's the bingo? I, oh. I don't even know. Okay. Uh, Which from one? well, it's from uh, from Lisa Arderay's uh, bingo yeah, square. We, one of them is I like see? we pass. Yeah. We mention like one of our significant others, and I think. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. I was like, what did I say that was bingo? <laughs> I forgot. I need to review the bingo card. Uh, but yeah, I had a conversation with Caitlin and she's, I said, well, you know, I did this and then I got this writing gig and then I got that writing gig. And, you know, so almost out of the gate with astrology, I was able to earn what would have been like a starting salary if you're in a corporate gig from writing because I had a couple of steady writing contracts in the beginning and just Caitlin reflected back to me, she goes, that's not what normally happens for people, Kelly. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, having a writing contract that may- pays you a couple of grand a month fall in your lap is probably not, you know, there aren't that many of them, I guess. Right. And that was from doing the magazine, right? Yeah, doing, that was actually, I, this was when I wrote my daily love horoscopes for Vodafone, which is a cell phone carrier in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's daily horoscopes, but only about relationships, but something different for each sign. And uh, that was definitely a writing test, but it was a steady gig. It was astrology and it was steady income. So I was like, that's going to pay my rent and my bills. And and I mean, that happens. I mean, we know different astrologers that have gotten those gigs like, um, you know, Annabelle Gatt writes the horoscopes for for Broadly, just started that like a few years ago. Um, Who else do we know that that wrote or has gotten? I know Sam Reynolds has written for different places. Barry Perlman used to write, funnily enough, Astro Barry used to write for a weekly women's magazine in Australia. That's where I first encountered him. Weed. He was writing for one of those weekly glossies. Um, And so, you know, little gigs like that. And and I actually was just really lucky. I had three or four of those different gigs. One would stop and within six months I'd get another one. Um, Ended up. So, you know, the writing was a big piece for me to get some steady income while I built up the consulting practice and while I was looking to develop the teaching. Um, But I know you guys had different experiences. So I think our listeners are going to enjoy hearing how we've all come to this from a different place. Yeah. Austin, is your primary income still consultations or has that become less so over the years? Um, So right now it's a pretty even mix of writing and consultations and teaching. And those three levels kind of go up and down relative to one another. But you know, it's mm-hmm. it's even-ish. It might be like 35, 40, 30 or something. Um, never mind, those don't add up to a hundred. That adds up to 105. But we get the um, gist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh yeah. My examples only added up to 90. <laughs> yeah. I um I didn't get paid for writing until uh, pretty far into it. I did a lot of writing for free. But the only reason people wanted to book a reading with me or knew that I existed was because I was writing. Um right. I, I think as an astrologer, it's not uh with very few exceptions. You should plan on writing, teaching, and reading, and yeah. you know you may lean heavier on one than the other, or have a special love or talent for one rather than the other two. But that's kind of what being an astrologer is. And substitute writing now for just gener- generic content creation on some platform, whatever platform that is. Yeah. Like just consistently putting out content or some sort of astrological content on that platform, whether it's writing a blog, whether it's writing a horoscope column, whether it's doing YouTube or a podcast or Twitter, like some people are developing entire followings 
just through consistently posting like informative or interesting astrology posts on Twitter or other platforms like Instagram. Um, but that's yeah, generating content, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say in the olden days, it used to be writing a blog post, but now it's like posting on your Instagram account or yeah, doing an Instagram story. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Instagram stories is huge these days. Uh, uh, so I-, I agree with you, Austin. I think it is like you want to almost come in at that sort of triple threat level where you're doing a little bit of a few different things and they all feed each other. Yeah. I mean, that's I, the job, I would say. Right, it is. It's, it's you're right. sharing your knowledge and these are different ways to do it basically and you'll be able to monetize them. You know, if you're doing a Patreon-style blog, for instance, that's going to be small amounts of money that is residual and builds up over time. Your consult can be a larger amount of money, but it's immediate and it's one-off. So it's just figuring out too how you have to manage your cash flow. Yeah, and then with classes, you know, record them and sell the recordings. Yeah, I would honestly say do that. Don't wait 15 years to be in your business before you start doing that. (laughs) That was what you did, but you're doing great now. I mean, you've got a huge catalog of both shorter recordings, like individual audio recordings, which you sell for like $10 or $15, I think is a standard versus online courses where you do more you have a bunch of pre-recorded ones, sort of like I have, and then other people yeah. or other times you have live ones like webinars, which Austin, I know that's more your approach is you do more live classes, which you also record and then later release the recording as well. Yeah. 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 I, well, okay. and that's part of that is the technology's changed over yeah. the years that we've been doing this. Like, you like know, rapidly. 15 years. Fifth, yeah. Like when I first, 10 years ago, when I first moved to Canada and I was like, doing basic downloadable stuff. It was so complicated to have things available for auto download on your website. And nowadays it's so easy. Right. Um, We're all so old now that we're just (laughs) talking about like technology issues from 10 years ago still. And the times have changed. I know. So, and for me, I actually stopped doing consultations uh, when I was writing my book two or three years ago. Because uh, I saved up enough money to like focus on the book, and then the podcast started taking off around the same time, and Patreon was doing relatively well. In addition to having built up several courses over the years, which are partially passive income from people signing up to get access to video lectures, basically or audio lectures, as well as some written content. Um, but my case is kind of unique, just because I have the podcast as well as the courses, and so I'm able to do that. And I just focus on creating as much content as I can that later people can like to to me right now it makes more sense instead of like sitting down and doing one one-on-one consultation for 2 hours with one person for $100 or 200 or whatever it costs to instead like record a lecture in that 2 hours and then sell it to you know 10 people for $50 or $100 or what have you and that's been the direction I've been heading in more although I realize that that's somewhat unique that usually that's just like a piece of most astrologers sort of strategy or overall business approach. Mhm. Oh, it's sorry, go. Oh, I was just going to say um books are worth mentioning. Um yeah. books are worth writing, but they're not, you know, you're uh, uh, um you'd have to write the next Linda Goodman's Sun Signs to really have that be a significant portion of your income. Yeah, there's still really like an open question right now because we're in this weird middle phase with books about whether books make sense to write to make you to to both either fin- financially or 
in order to establish yourself in the community in terms of your credibility and and stuff if it's still worth it or not or or to what extent that really makes it a difference well i mean and it's kind of like an open you, question you i mean there you literally can't do uh um how should we say you need a couple hundred pages to put out something that is dense and sophisticated and has real value blogs will never replace books they can replace no. some books but you know, um, the 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 world needs books. Books are not obsolete. Um, sure, they don't make you a lot of money. They make some money, right? And that's that's but, it's nice, but it's you know, I like my book money has always been oh, that's that's a nice supplement, and I'm glad that they're selling. But it's not you know uh, the idea of if anyone has the dream of of becoming becoming rich or even. Um, middle class, <laughs> um, strictly through writing astrology books, uh, you may need to adjust your fantasies. Yeah. And, and it's worth noting, all three of us established ourselves and have become relatively successful astrologers before we ever published an astrology book or without ever publishing an astrology book. So it's no longer, whereas like I 20 or 30 years one. ago. Yes. <laughs> right. And it's like, it doesn't matter because you're you're still drawing, like you're filling up, you're doing well, like keynote lectures, you're consulting with like hundreds of clients a year. Like it absolutely <laughs> does not matter publishing no. a book at this stage and things have changed so much. Whereas 20 or 30 years ago, that was the way that you established yourself nationally and internationally through writing a book, I feel like. Uh, I would say it still matters now for legacy. Yeah. Sure. And and that 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 idea occurred to me when we were referencing particularly Robert Schmidt earlier is that his legacy like it is very sad that he's not here anymore but the legacy that he has left us with through the written work and the translation work that he did that is we now have for eternity you know it'll go onto some digital file somewhere. But it's yeah, I mean the one of the reasons that I haven't written a book up until now is that I didn't really have a lot of passive income. And I needed to pay my bills. Right. You and gotta I going. knew. You got to keep going. Yeah. I'm like the is. content. Yeah. I'm like, I need stuff that's going to pay me. I need to get my monthly income or what have you. And uh, so I definitely still make a lot of my money from consults. It's consults and teaching right now for me. And I haven't done as much writing lately and I'm, I'm desperately missing it. So I'm happy to get the book contract. Um, but part of what is going to give me the time for that is that there is a little bit of passive income now from the teaching sales that is happening, which will allow me to step back from consults for a little bit of time so that I can, you know, get into the guts of the very time consuming, but very soul fulfilling work of writing a book. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it just depends on your situation and whether you are working full time right now and you can do some content creation that will become your passive income stream because you've already got money coming in or whether you need to get money coming in pretty quickly and then you're going to maybe make different choices about what you start with. Yeah, but just and then we can move on that three-pronged strategy that Austin mentioned, mm. that's probably still the core strategy which is totally. you're going to do consultations, you're going to develop content and put out content, do content creation and then try to for a portion, also develop some passive income through lectures, reports, or something that you can sell that you put the work into it initially, and then you can sell it passively from that point forward. And if you do that sort of three-pronged strategy, I think that's more or less what most astrologers are doing on some level or, or another. Totally. All right. Good question. 
Uh, let's keep moving. So the next one is from at the astrology on Twitter, uh, who actually I should mention this. Um, this is Shakira who just released uh, the Influx Astrology magazine. The very first issue of that just came out. I just got it in the mail the other day, and I wanted to show that off because it's actually really cool. So this is what oh, it looks gorgeous. like. It's this gorgeous print, full color. Um, magazine, and it's got a whole section on things like horoscopes for the like the quarter, the entire winter quarter or or, or winter season, but also some really amazing um, articles and like editorials. It's got a nice uh, like calendar at the back with different astrological alignments and things like that. I would definitely recommend checking this out. I'm actually very excited about it. It's at influxmag.com. So um, her. Questions. Let's pull up her question, which came in on Twitter. She said, How did each of you discover your way of doing astrological readings? How did you come down to figuring out your method slash system of prioritizing what to look at when presented with a client's chart? How long did it take to solidify your method? So what do you guys what do you guys think? How long did it take you? So you start doing consultations at some point. You started a little bit a little bit rocky. You've got your like book knowledge, but then eventually maybe you've read a for, uh, charts for like a few family members or friends. But eventually you start seeing clients. Things started a little bit rocky, as it does for everyone, I think. When or how long did it take to eventually like solidify your method, though? Uh, well, so I would say I would differentiate my method from my approach, like the the methods or techniques that I use. Um, you know, I use everything that I've ever learned that is relevant to the client's concerns. Um, you know, and I, I learn, you know, I try to learn new stuff all the time. So that that is in flux. Um, my approach, right? Just the the angle or perspective and method of in not method, but style of engagement. Um, you know, is a is a more personal thing in that it's more. A result of you know your 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 outlook on life and your way of relating to people and to astrology, and that that's something I would say that that's something you simply discover with time, and that if you're comfortable with what you know what your approach is, that you know the techniques come and go, or mostly they they pile up in my case, but that I think that a, approach is more important than specific methods. Right. Um, what do you, what do you think, Kelly? Yeah, I agree, Austin. In the sense that, like, you when you're setting out to create your style, if you like, with chart reads, it's sort of it's not really something you consciously consciously choose. Like, my style is going to be, or my system is going to be this. It sort of emerges organically as you do charts, essentially. And so I like the distinction you make, Austin, between, you know, what are the what is the method or the technique that you're using versus, you know, the way in which you might be delivering it or synthesizing it, that sort of personal piece. And, you know, the, the prioritization of what to look at. I mean, I think the question is sort of alluding to, um, you know, what exactly do you look at in what order? Um, I don't know if I'm reading the question right. Um but I guess the one piece that I always start with, that I've always started with, is the Ascendant and the Ascendant ruling planet. 
And that's that's a technique or a method piece, but it's always made sense to me, I guess, to start at the beginning, a very good place to start, as the Sound of Music song tells us. Um, but the way in which that gets woven into the chart is fairly organic and it, there is a little bit of nuance. There's a little bit of a different approach, you know, per chart. Depends a little bit on the client. I might have like a style or a process that I'm comfortable working through, but actually had a client this week where we we started somewhere completely different because they had just mentioned something and we just went with where they were. So there's a little bit of responsiveness. Um, as long as I feel that I'm prepared for the chart, I'm happy to kind of dive in based on where the client wants to go. Uh, so it's very organic, I guess. And it, I know when you're learning, you kind of want the process or the step-by-step. -step, so I can appreciate, you know, why people ask this question essentially. Well, yeah, definitely. And, 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 I, and it's well, like, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's half and half. It's like half you need to have, you've got your basic methods of the things that you really want to apply relatively consistently to every chart, which is like looking at the ruler of the ascendant and where it's placed in the houses and what sign it's placed in and like every chart that you look at. Uh, mm -hmm. For me, it's things like sect, looking at is it, is it a day or night chart, and then what's the most positive planet in the chart if it's a day chart, and what's the most challenging planet if it's a night chart. So it's, it's like you've got those things you can start with that you can apply consistently to every chart, but then the other half is going to be random sort of things that you've picked up and learned over the years that are going to come up sporadically on a case-by-case -case basis, because not everybody's going to have that placement or not everyone's going to have that thing, so it's not always going to be relevant, but sometimes you'll see a chart and you'll see something either that you've seen before and so you have a specific idea of how it might work out or that you've learned about in some context before that's actually really relevant for some reason because it's prominent in this person's chart. And it's some combination of those two of like having the methodology or a specific fixed methodology versus being flexible to just like what presents itself in an individual consultation. Yeah, definitely. I, I I guess so. I can't imagine not looking at the ascendant and what rules the ascendant. Um, I feel like that's a given. Um, I guess it's so funny though because that's not a standard. It's not a standard. thing in modern astrology. No. That's something we've all picked up from traditional astrology that that was <sighs> standard for like hundreds of years, but that it's only being revised na revived now. But okay, it's so well, useful. That's unacceptable. Um, sure. <laughs> so I guess so. But just thinking about what do I do? You know, like what I. Mostly done for, I don't know, maybe the last five, six, seven years is, you know, I look, I take in the chart where everything is. Uh, I look at, um, I look at transits, uh, and perfections and where they're at in zodiacal releasing just to kind of get a framework on what part of life they're in and what is emphasized in the natal chart. And then I generally kind of, uh, end up kind of flowing and digging around in the natal chart for, you know, things that are particularly nice that when mm. activated are going to be really fortunate, happy periods. And I also look for the weak spot. I always look for like, what's the, what's the worst thing about this chart? You know, what, what's the, yeah you know, what's the word? What's the, uh, the fault line? Yeah. So, you know, so I can be aware that that's going to be sensitive and also maybe think about, you know, how to approach that or shore that up or, you know, safeguard it. Right. What's the what's the difficulty and what's the best euphemism you can use for describing that? <laughs> you know, I'm actually yeah. very kind in my chart readings. I know I I know I um 
there's a lot of Clyde Barker-esque metaphors uh, when I'm writing and speaking. But uh, <laughs> on the podcast, <laughs> yeah, on the podcast or when I write, you know, I like metaphor. Like, I I don't know. I like I am not disturbed by disturbing things. If that makes sense, like yes, that that that, and that's clearly a true statement, Austin. For those of us who've had a window into you for a little while now, and, yeah. And your sewers metaphor for Venus retrograde and Scorpio has gone over very well on social media for like the past three or four months. Yeah, it's, people are well, still it, talking about it. It was also uh, literally accurate for lots of people. Uh, I, yes. I got tons of emails from people who are like, uh, somebody emailed me yesterday. Uh, no, they emailed me like two weeks ago, but I read it yesterday, um, and they were like. Yeah, so with uh, you know, the Venus uh, Cloacina or Cloacina, I think it's Cloacina in Latin, um, sewer Venus. Uh, she's like, so I an old an ex boyfriend hit me up. He's a photographer, and he's doing a project where he's taking pictures of famous toilets all around uh, New York City. She's like, nice. as soon as Venus stationed retrograde, um, and I was like, awesome. And I've gotten lots of emails like that. You know, the, so you you are yeah. you are otherwise though your point was that you were not using sewer metaphors in most individual one on one consultations. No, not unless the person has a good sense of humor. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I like this. Um, you know, how can we be diplomatic about what's good or what's bad? Because I that's one thing I'm often holding. It's not so much a technique, but when I'm looking at the chart, I'm like, what is working really well in this chart? Where where do I see sort of flow or vitality or success or potential? And where do I see the roadblocks? Where are the problems? What's gone wrong? What is causing this problem pain? Because what's causing this what's causing this person some pain because it's not working the way that it should. Right. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you're looking for planets that are maybe in difficult aspects or out of sect or tricky signs or station. I mean, there's a number of technical configurations that would answer those questions. But you really I I like that approach, Austin, where you're really looking for what are some high points and what are some low points? And then how can we support both of these? How can we get them to do more of what's working? But how can we bring in some, you know, how can we shore up this leaky spot? Yeah. Basically? Yeah. Well, and also for that, like I want to, part of the reason for that is, and you know, which, what's being emphasized right now, what's relevant to this period of life, like is a person being, uh, uh, you know, our, our transits and time Lords and all that, like, putting a person in their sunken place where they, where we really need to focus on remediating, um, remediating a difficulty or minimizing unpleasantness or whatever, or are they coming into a period of strength where they need, where it would be useful to think about how to optimize that strength and maximize it as well as to be told by a stranger. Um, this says you totally have the strength that you think you do. You should probably go with that. Like have full, yes. have full confidence in that. And it's, you know, it's time for that particularly shiny part of you to shine. So, you know. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, th that's that's the key is like these are the weak spots. These are the good spots. And then what, where are you right now? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. What do we need to talk about in the short time? Are you at have? the bottom of the sewer or are you sitting on the throne? Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, just to bring it back around, I mean, the, the answer though to the question is basically repetition and through the practice. process of doing it practice over and over again, seeing clients, applying the techniques that you know and the things that you've learned, eventually you're going to have these carryovers where there's certain ones that work really well for you and that you've found to work well in certain consultations and then you'll apply it in another consultation and it'll work again, whereas there'll be some techniques where you're like, that's a little iffy. I'm not sure if that worked as well as I would have hoped. And maybe you might 
use that one less as time goes on. And through that process of just like repetition, you eventually will develop your own approach based on the techniques that you gravitate and the interpretations that you gravitate more towards versus the ones that you've found to be like not effective in your personal practice for whatever reason. And um, Lee Lehman actually had this great analogy that she used in her book on horary, the martial art of horary astrology, where she likens astrology to like a martial art and just learning the basic stances like in karate or the basic moves and stuff as like an initial thing. But eventually through the process of just repetition and doing those basic learned things over and over again, eventually you gain this sort of fluidity with it so that eventually you can um, improvise when necessary just sort of on the fly because everything's just become so ingrained that eventually you don't have to think about it. It just happens and you just do it. I mean, it was that as somebody that does martial arts, Austin, is that like a correct analogy for how that works on some level? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. I actually, Lee actually sent me some of her old martial arts books. I have, um, I have the Encyclopedia of Taekwondo on my shelf about 10 feet behind me. Nice. Yeah. And for that, I don't know if we actually talked about that specific topic, but for that episode, uh, you can go back and listen to episode 116 on horary astrology questions with Lee Lehman. Uh, side note, I don't know if I've mentioned on this pod, on the podcast before, but I finally got it so that the RSS feed shows all past episodes of the astrology podcast now rather than just the latest 50. So if you pull the podcast up on your phone and you refresh the feed, it'll show you every episode now on your phone rather than just like the last 50. So I've been trying to figure out how to get it to do that without crashing the podcast for a couple of years now unsuccessfully. Finally got it to work, so now everybody can listen to the back episodes easily uh, because I re realized at one point that people didn't know that there was more than 50 episodes. So they were missing on this like huge back catalog, huge like back, back stuff catalog. we had talked about. All right. So I think that's good for that question, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Cool. We're so on fire. Definitely. We're doing very well. So thank you to Shakira Toburn, Toburn for uh, sending that in. And like I said, check out her magazine at influxmag.com. All right. So moving on to the next question. This is from Christina and, and Austin. You already partially answered this question. You kind of well, the, uh, the answer is little... no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the question was from Christina Marie uh, at ch Marie on Twitter. She says, "Is it rude to ask what house system an astrologer uses when inquiring about a session?" And Austin's answer immediately on Twitter was no. Was no. I said. I and said I not at all. Not, not at, at all. all. Okay. You, that that's polite. right. You were very kind and gentle in delivering the no. There you go. Gentlemanly. Uh, gentlemanly. And I agree completely. It's not rude. And I was going to comment on Twitter, but then we got in trouble for answering questions on Twitter. Yeah. So. No. I, I answer <laughs> one. I answer one question that's just no, and Chris yells at me. <laughs> so I was like, I'll hold my answer to the episode. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, now you guys can expand on Austin. But I mean, it's it's not, not like a it's a it's a two sentence elaboration. I like it when clients ask about specifics like this beforehand because then we can be clear about what we're doing when we get together. So I actually encourage these type of questions, and I think it's always better as the client. You're allowed to know what kind of a service you're going to have. Is it you know? Is it a Placidus quadrant reading? Is it whole sign? Is it some other special, you know, ask all the questions that you feel you need 
um, to know about what you're getting. You're paying good money for a reading with with an astrologer. So I think go for it. Ask all the questions. Yeah, and I think that's definitely true. And people shouldn't feel like they can't or like it would be inappropriate to ask a question like that or to ask them like, "What zodiac do you use? Do you use tropical or sidereal?" Um, yeah. Or you know, there's other, there's other questions like that. Do you use modern or traditional rulerships? One of the things that's tricky though, it's kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you do want to, if you know those or if you have a certain view of your chart already, you're going to want to normally find an astrologer that has a similar view in order to help you better understand what you already know about your chart. But it's kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you want that and, and certainly that's something that you have the right to do. But on the other hand, sometimes it's nice to expose yourself to other forms of astrology and other approaches that you may not be familiar with and to see how an astrologer might answer a question from a different perspective and sometimes that can be instead of being like like annoying sometimes that can be enlightening so that's the only like little caveat i wanted to add on top of that is that sometimes reaching outside of your comfort zone can be useful but otherwise like 80% of the time it's fine to ask the astrologer ahead of time what their approach is so that you know everything going into it and you can make a, an, an informed choice in terms of who you consult with. Yeah, I actually have had a number of people um, book consultations with me because I did things not the same as they did. Okay. And they wanted a, a second yeah. opinion. You know, we all get bored of our own opinions about ourselves. At least we should. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's part of the learning experience and it's, a, it's constructive or it can be constructive. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean similarly with the whole whole sign uh, explosion in popularity. Um, some clients are like, I've not looked at my chart in this in this way, and I, I'd love to hear what it's like. Um, so, because I, th I think sometimes that question is not just how do you do it. I only want to be with to work with someone who's like me. Sometimes it's equally from that perspective of. I'm open to, or I'm curious about this this way that's different from what I normally do, and I just want to clarify. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's good to go in like and not be blindsided by it. I mean, if you're used to looking at your yeah. chart from a certain perspective, and this astrologer does it completely different, and you didn't know that going into it, you know, sometimes that's good, and sometimes it might might be surprising and in like an unwanted sense. So yeah, but it's perfectly reasonable for a client or a prospective client to ask an astrologer questions like that ahead of time. Absolutely, it's definitely not rude. It's definitely not rude. Sure. I think if anyone gives you a bad reaction to a question like that, that's weird. I mean, the only scenario where I could see somebody having a bad reaction if it's like a really busy astrologer. I don't know what the situation is in terms of like booking things. Like if they're booked really far ahead, I don't know if those astrologers are always like super on top of fielding questions like that where you're asking for like a detailed response about how they do readings. Some might just be like, well, I have my approach. I mean, if you want to set up a consultation with me, that's good. But yeah, I guess there's a difference between asking a couple of quick questions around, right. you know, are using this zodiac or this house system versus I would like a 500 word description of how you want to approach the reading. Because then right. I would say, I've got a description outline on my website of what I offer in this service. If, you know, if that's right for you, great. If it's not, that's fine. Go on to someone different type of thing. Right. Um, Please tell me what is the mechanism underlying astrology and yeah, no. <laughs> what is what are its history and origins that explain your current approach to the subject? 
Yeah, that's and and I think there are some astrologers. There's a couple that come to mind who are are super busy, you know, high volume consulting astrologers, and they would have administration assistants who would be fielding some of these questions for them as well. Right, like Stephen yeah. Forrest or something like that, where he's booking six months like or twelve year. months or like two years yeah. ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they would have an admin person that would be able to answer these questions. So sure. Yeah. All right, good times. That's a good question. Thanks for submitting so, that, Christina. Easy one, Christina. Uh, let's move on to the next one by Ashley Bobber on Twitter at at astro underscore Ashley eleven. So she says, "I'm curious when you get a first time client natal reading. Uh, what do you start with when talking to the client?" So first time, so let's say, I guess she's asking if this is their very first consultation or perhaps if they don't have any background in astrology whatsoever, what do you start with? Like, how do you, how do you open up a reading like that? Because okay, I, th right. I think we would certainly yeah. all agree that those are a little bit more challenging on some level compared to if you've got somebody coming to you who's like a astrology enthusiast or like another astrologer that speaks the same language, that that's a little bit different of a dynamic compared to somebody who is maybe new to the subject or hasn't had a reading before and doesn't really know how it goes? I It is different. I don't know that I would use the word challenging, okay. it, but it is certainly different. It, the, the energy is different. The experience is different. The way you're going to, you know, and, the, and just as you were saying that, I'm like, oh, I know what I do for this. So if a client's coming in and they've maybe never seen their birth chart before. You know, they're here because somebody said they should come and they thought it sounded fun. Um, either they've never seen their chart before or they've seen it, but they've really got no idea what they're looking at. Usually the first thing I do for a client like that is we do a very quick astrology 101 in here's a picture of your chart. Let me just introduce you to what we're actually looking at here. Usually I start by saying this part is the ascendant and Here's the descendant, and this represents the horizon, and this is the sky, and these are the planets. And so it's a very quick, like, sort of astrology in five minutes or less, but just to introduce them to the material that we'll be working with. And then we would, then I would go into your ascendant is, and, you know, this is what it means. There is a little bit more explanation because you can't use astrological terminology and have the instant resonance or understanding for an absolute newbie client. So just being aware that you will have to maybe change your pacing and change the style of words that you might use. Yeah, that's that's really good. And that actually ties into another question that maybe we could throw into this one mm. from uh, Rob, who is at Old School Astro on Twitter. He says, in a reading, to what extent do you do each of you oh, explain yes. the techniques? Do you just deliver the information to the client, or do you reference the placements and configurations that you're getting the information from? And if you do explain, how much time do you spend explaining? So, part of you've partially answered that question. That especially with a newer client or somebody that's newer to astrology, you do there is a fair, a decent percentage of a consultation that is kind of like teaching and trying to explain to them parts of what they're looking at when you're looking at a horoscope, which is always like the center or, or a birth chart, which is like the centerpiece or the focal point of any natal consultation. Is that the same for you, Austin? Do you do a fair amount of like sort of teaching or like informal teaching on the fly in a consultation, or are you just all just delineating and trying to translate it into something they would understand? It totally depends on the person I'm talking to. Mm. Right. So let's let's say though it's a brand new person like Ashley asked that's first time natal reading how much time would you spend like trying to explain the chart or even like the astronomy of what you're looking at on the diagram versus just going straight to like delineation um 
I'll yeah, I'll do some more explaining just so you know, this is the thing that we're looking at. This is um, where I'm drawing these statements from. You know, this is a rising sign. Your rising sign is this. Um, you know, it characterizes your intersection with reality like this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, but but still, it's very adaptive. It depends on it's a first time reading. Is this person really interested in astrology and wants wants everything to be explained? Um, is their uh, is their goal um, primarily self knowledge, where they don't really care about astrology, but they think they're they're interested in you know what's reflected in that mirror about you know their lives. Um, it really depends on how you know where someone's coming from. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and it's going to vary so widely. Different people are going to come at it from such a wide perspective. It, and this is the tricky part when people are looking to get started with consults or build their practice is there are so many nuances like this that come in where it's not as though we're doing exactly the same thing for clients in similar circumstances. So I totally appreciate it's a little bit confusing because in some ways it's sort of a case-by-case -case, uh, example. And yeah, to, to Rob's question of how much do you, you know, do you just deliver the information? Yeah. Does the client have any interest in understanding the astrological terms, in which case sometimes a new session is a little bit almost like a combined teaching chart consult. Um, you know, obviously they're there for the consult and the interpretation, but some people are really like, oh, what, what is that term again? And, you know, what, what does that aspect mean? You know, there, there's a real enthusiasm or a hunger for the astrology in addition to the interpretation. Um, but there are some clients who are well-versed in astrology and they're like, so what's your technique again? How did you get, you know, and they really, they want you to kind of take you through your process in addition to give you the interpretation. Yeah. And that's going to be especially more prominent for like other astrologers, like coming to another astrologer for a reading or, or students of astrology that are already studying it. Like they want to know what you're doing. Um, yeah. So, so for me, I mean, I do think in my approach to doing consultations or what was my approach that it was always Kind of crucial for me to explain and somewhat try to teach at least some of the basics of like the astronomy and like what we're looking at in the diagram. Like, you know, this is the rising sign. This is where the sun rises in the morning each day, and the descendant is where the sun sets. And to use that as the basis for some of the metaphors or other descriptions that you, you use so that you're tying it into something physical and like reality rather than just this abstract diagram. Um, but I also would always do that or have a, a certain component of a consultation that's teaching because part of my goal was always to like get people into astrology, partially out of the belief that I think the best way to do astrology and to to do personal astrology is eventually to learn it yourself. Um, and that eventually, to the extent that you learn it yourself, you're going to eventually do a better job and you're going to get more out of like reading something like your horoscope. Or reading an astrological forecast, or even a consultation, um, just because there's so many nuances and details and things that go into astrology and an interpretation, it's very hard to cover everything that you want to cover in a 75-minute consultation. So, to whatever extent you can learn it yourself, that's going to be useful to you personally. And I always wanted to like convey that to clients by teaching them a little bit about astrology in each consultation, in addition to just doing the delineation. Um, and then that was also positive because then they could also see that there was a reason why I was making certain statements. That this is like to point to this specific thing and say this is the reason why I would make this statement based on this technique, or 
you know, this other statement based on this other technique. So then you can show them that there's like a a rhyme or a reason to it. And I think there's something about that that also gets people more interested and more excited about astrology rather than just making a bunch of statements about their life that they otherwise don't know where that's coming from or, or what have you. Yeah, I prefer to do it that way. Some people don't care though. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really going to care, like you said, Austin, on a case by case basis. But it's more, I don't know, it's more enjoyable for me if the person is interested in approaching it from that perspective, because then you get to do both of not just doing the delineation, but also, you know, teaching them something. It's like the whole, you know, give a man a fish versus like teaching him how to fish type thing analogy is like exactly what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, sorry. Austin. Oh, yeah. I was just saying, yeah, it's preferable. But some mm. people just want to fish. I mean, they're just like, give me the some fish. Some people do. It. They just want, they just want you to give them the fish. And, you know, it's different. But I think now I'm just like, where is the client at? Okay. I'll, we'll, we'll, I, I, I mean, my counseling background was very much a client centered style of counseling that the way I was trained. And I've carried that into my astrology, which I think is what you guys are essentially saying too, is that we each have our own kind of preferences, but, you know, we will be led by the client's um, personal choice on the day, basically. Yeah, you adapt yourself to the client and the client's yeah. needs and wants versus just like your own needs and wants, where you're not going like, to well, force them to learn astrology yes. if they don't want to learn it. <laughs> exactly. You know, because then that client is going to feel like they didn't get what they want because you talk to them about all this technical stuff and they're like, but I just wanted you to tell me what you saw in my chart or what you thought my year ahead might look like, for instance. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's it it's but it, that also is a little bit of an experience, confidence in your approach, confidence in your skills, where you're willing to co um, co-create or collaborate with the client. Yeah, so that's a crucial part of that early like rapport building stage that we were talking about at the beginning of trying to like suss out, um, you know, how they want to do this consultation, what level they're at, and and what sort of approach they're looking for in terms of learning the techniques versus just learning the outcomes or the predictions that you would make or the interpretations or what have you. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, that sounds good. I think we can we can leave it at that. So we've knocked out two questions. So thanks to Ashley and to Rob for submitting those two. Uh, next question, I don't know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. And I know you guys didn't want to too much, but this is the dr draconic question, which is actually by at Millie Michelle on Twitter, and I'm actually really excited to rejoin Twitter recently. She's helping me recently to moderate the Reddit astrology page, and she's doing a really amazing job and is a great astrologer, so everyone should check her Twitter out. She asks, um, what is the, the proper use of the draconic chart, if any of you guys use it at all, and how to properly integrate it into the expression of self up against the natal chart? So she asks, what purpose does it serve besides the knee-jerk magic of it being a rendered a rendering of the quote unquote sole purpose. So this is a tricky question because the answer partially when we were discussing this and trying to like rank and order the questions we wanted to get to first was none of us use the dr draconic chart basically between the three of us, right? I don't. Yes, I don't. Okay, and I don't either. And somewhere in the past year, I actually addressed this. I don't know if it was on a previous Q and A or if it was a forecast episode. I'll have I to do a search. I think it might have been a Q and A, Chris, because it's sounding vaguely familiar to me. And I wonder if it was a past Q and A that we've done, where I think you might have made this comment. Yeah, and if I can find that, I'll put a link to it on the description page because I remember getting interested in it because I just didn't know where it came from. I know it's something that 
I've seen talked about in places, and it's often referenced as like a very ancient technique using the draconic chart. But having studied like traditional astrology and some medieval and Renaissance astrology, I've never really seen it in any of those sources. So I always like had it bookmarked in my mind as a thing to investigate at some point. Where did this even come from? Because I just had the vague sense that it was actually a, a relatively recent innovation that was somehow being promoted as a more ancient thing than it was. And I think that the last time we got this question on a previous episode, I actually investigated and found that it is actually a re relatively recent technique that was invented sometime just a few decades ago, and it may have been invented based on a misinterpretation of an actual genuine ancient text that I'm actually familiar with where it was like a myth about connected to the Theba Mundi and like the creation of the cosmos and how the planets got their domicile assignments and this funny little story about the sun moving from Leo into Virgo and the other signs and then all of the planets like fleeing and moving around in zodiacal order until they got into their second domicile but that somehow part of that persian myth was like possibly misinterpreted in modern times as this whole other approach to astrology where you take the north node and then that becomes zero degrees of Aries or something like that. I think that's what you you just looked it up and that was the definition, right, Austin? Yeah. The north yeah, the north node um anchors a new zodiac that begins with zero Aries at the north node's position. Right. And that's just something from studying traditional astrology where I've never seen any traditional or ancient astrologers actually doing that until like 20 or 30 years ago. And so I don't want to, I haven't, I haven't written like a whole research project or paper on it yet. So I don't want to make this my final word, but my initial understanding at the present time is that this seems to be a new, relatively new technique that may be based on a misinterpretation of an older astrological text from like the sixth or seventh century or something like that. But I'll have to get back to you and like do a full episode investigating that at some point in the future. In the short term, I guess it's suffice it to say that the three of us do not or have not really used that technique and it's not a regular part of our practice, right? Correct. Correct. Alrighty. Then that is that for that question. So thanks a lot for posing that. Um, there was one, and I don't know if we want to get into this, but it was kind of like another question that was a sub one connected to that where Kip at Eudaimonia Astro on Twitter asked, I'd love to hear the three of you compare and contrast your views on the application of the lunar nodes. So I've done other Q&As, like the one I did with Adam Summer. We were going to do like 20 questions, and then the very first question was on the nodes, and then that turned into a whole episode talking about the nodes. So on some level, I almost want to just refer back to that episode for my views. Do you guys have any interest in noting very very quickly your own approach to the nodes? Yeah, I think I can do it fast. Um, All right. So real quick, there are three major schools of thought on the nodes. One is the uh, the evolutionary school where you're kind of uh, moving towards the north node and trying to work on letting go with the south node. Um, the other approach is that found in most traditional texts, most traditional Western texts, which is that the north node is the more button and the south node is the less button. And then the third approach is that seen in Vedic astrology, um, which is, I think, more difficult to characterize quickly because Vedic astrology has mm, makes extensive use of the nodes and has for thousands of years. And so um, 
you know, there's a, there's more there than, than can be said quickly. Um, and I, my, I, I personally tend to defer to the Jyotish opinions. Um, when there's a conflict in general, I take an alchemical view of the nodes. Uh, I see the, the North node as the, the coagula between spirit and matter. It brings about identification with things and it's, it's sort of, um, grasping onto things more firmly, which can be good and can also get you in a lot of trouble. And I see the South Node is the letting go or the releasing of a grasp, and it's the solve uh, or the separation of spirit and matter. Nice. Yeah. And Kelly, what do you what do you think? I would only add a very couple of brief points that I, like Austin, I tend to grab most of my most useful um, info about the nodes from the Indian or the Vedic tradition and to be mindful that they're both very potent and intense points that have a little bit of a tendency to excess and an excess of too much or an excess of release, if you like, if we think about North versus South, perhaps they, they sort of have this, this hungry, never satisfied kind of tone. Um, so we get amplification for planets that are say conjunct the North or the South node in slightly different ways. Uh, but suffice to say, I do think they're quite important. I don't think there's a lot of m- maybe really useful literature in the West on them. So I do like to uh, import uh, from the East. Which yeah. is kind of saying something because there's actually a lot of literature in the past couple of decades, two or three decades yeah. on the nodes in the West. So you're kind of, it's kind of like shade, throwing some shade to say well, that on some level. Yeah, well, and but I, compared not- to... 1500 2000 year yeah, yeah 2000 year indian tradition yeah you i mean we can compare 30 years to 2000 years yeah well it's just it's and that was it's not an insult to you know people who've been you know for the 30 years it's just you know there's certain thing there's certain understandings which get refined over time and through generations of practitioners and you know all that all the good stuff that that lineage brings the, the one modern piece that, I mean, I associate it with modern and maybe the origin is older in the Western tradition that I do kind of like, I don't use it in every client situation, but occasionally it will be something I talk about is to look at the rulers of the nodes. Um, and so that may be in the Vedic tradition as well. I remember learning it first through the modern approach, but I, I do like you know, so to consider the traditional ruling planet of the sign of the North Node or the South Node, uh, yeah, yeah, and and I I think I've talked about this at different places. Like I said, listen to episode one twenty seven for my previous discussion on the nodes. But I went through this whole process over the past ten years of trying to remove the nodes and like not use them as much in my practice because when I came up in modern astrology, that's just like there's such a huge component. Like it's almost been. There's been this like fetishization of the nodes where they've just become the first thing that anyone looks at. And in some approaches to astrology in like the late 20th century, it's almost virtually like the only thing that people look at. And I realize that's not that's overstating the point a little bit, but there's just some approaches that are so centered on the nodes and centered on the idea of like your past life or your future life being associated with that. And the thing that really shocked me when I began studying older forms of astrology. Uh, in the mid 2000s was I didn't see any of that in traditional astrology prior to the 20th century. There just was not this huge elaborate doctrine of like karma and reincarnation, or at least reincarnation being associated with the nodes as like a specific thing 
prior to the mid to late 20th century. And that really shook me up because it was such a crucial and big piece of modern astrology that everyone was taking for granted that it made me want to remove the nodes from my practice and try and get some some space and some perspective on them. And then I've sort of slowly been reintegrating them over the course of the past past several years, basically. Uh, but the main thing I use them for now is just their mathematical points because they show where the path of the sun crosses the path of the moon. And when that happens, you get an eclipse because when the moon moves in front of the sun, of course, you get an eclipse. And that's the primary thing that I use them for now is they're just markers that tell you what signs eclipses are going to start taking place in around that time frame or in the near future. And so it's through the eclipses really that they have their greatest meaning to me or purpose or usefulness at this point in time. Yeah, well, and that's uh, agreed. And that's also where all of their meanings should come from. It's the language of shadow. Mm. Sure. Yeah. So, all right. I think that's good for that question. And listen to, like I said, and I'm summer. Summer and I got stuck on a whole nodes discussion in episode 127. So check that out for more on that topic. Um, next question: Catherine Urban uh, at Astro Catherine asks, when clients ask you if they should leave their partner, uh, ellipsis. Obviously, we cannot make that choice for them. What are some of the ways that you've helped people navigate this situation? Have you guys had this come up, or do you have any recent like recollections of a situation like this come up in a consulting setting? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was um, the um, the client sent me uh, the chart of uh, a dude that um, I I shouldn't talk about it. Okay. Okay. Um, do you want to talk generally rather than specifically, Austin? Sure. Or I mean, it could be like major life choices and somebody is either asking you to make a choice for them or asking you on some level to how to navigate that situation which is sometimes like i have a major life choice and decision to make i'm coming to you as an astrologer to give me advice or perspective on it and sometimes that fine line we have as astrologers between giving advice and perspective versus giving like directives of like somebody asking you which choice to make? I have two paths. Wh which one should I go down, or what have you? Is that a good way to like reframe the yeah. question? <laughs> That's very diplomatically done, Chris. Thank you. Well, so one, it depends on what the chart says, um, and what their situation is, right? If it's someone's like, you know, we're if they're in a what's obvious, if they're in an obviously horrific situation, then yes, you encourage them to leave. Um, right. If somebody's like, I'm an abusive in an abusive relationship, what should I do? As the astrologer, you don't actually need the chart to answer that question. Right. Yeah. Well, as the astrologer, your primary and fundamental goal, astrology or not, is to help the client and to do no harm, let's say, from in like a medical context almost. Yeah. One of the things that I'll do in consultations and mm, not just, uh, in relationship to this issue, but also others is I will take a step back from the astrology and offer an opinion as a person who's talking to them. Right. To and human. I will say, yeah. you know, I will I will lift the astrology hat up and place it there and say, this is not the chart. You know, this this is just my opinion as a person who you wanted to talk to about this and then yeah. give an opinion um, framed as an opinion. Um, and that that can allow you to be honest as a person, especially if you're 
you know, you have some strong thoughts about the situation as they're describing and as you're seeing it um, without sort of uh, without pretending that those opinions have more authority um, than they do, but still, you know, offering them to the other person, you know, with your best wishes or best with your best intentions. Right. I like that. And then you proceed to put the astrology hat back on and continue the consultation as the astrologer. The astrology hat, interestingly, probably looks like a wizard hat, or I'm trying to imagine what the astrology hat would look like if you I mean, it, had an actual uh, it is it's gotta be the the classical conical with stars over it. You know, all right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I did get a visual of the Harry Potter sorting hat, but that's not quite the same hat. <laughs> right. But it's, I, I agree, Austin, I, I do something similar. Uh, I don't necessarily do it at the start of the session, but if there comes a point, you know, mid-consult where the person seems to be really wanting me to give them an answer, like, what should I do? Because that can happen about a relationship or about a job or a family situation. A, it's usually a clue the person is really in deep turmoil about this issue and almost wants to be liberated from the responsibility of choosing for themselves. So you kind of want to keep that in mind. But I'll often say, look, I'll just put the chart to the side. As a human, you know, this is what it sounds like. This is what it feels like. You know, I can, there's a lot of reflecting that might go on with the language around the emotions. But what I find to Catherine's question, sometimes just going into the astrology, these are the cycles that you're in. This is the perfection or the transit or the progression or the releasing period. This is what the lay of the land looks like now, or this is what you've been dealing with in the last 12 months. This is what looks like it's ahead for you. That can sometimes help settle that inner turmoil down where they start to reconnect with themselves. They maybe come out of their crazy over analytical headspace and into more of a heart or belly space from which place they can be more honest with themselves. And clients can come in desperate to have an answer to a question and through the experience of the consult, leave feeling more calm and more confident in what they may do, even if they don't have a clear answer. A hundred percent. And that reminds Definitely. me of something else that I end up saying a lot that I think is important is yeah. um, usually I can see a person's confusion about, the, about yes. an, an issue, whether it's professional or relational, and I can see the timing of it. And uh, one other thing I will tell people is um, it does not matter what I think or, you know, even if I could see mm. the future perfectly, you're not going to be able to make this decision and stick with it until you achieve in until you achieve certainty within yourself. And what I can I can't, uh, you know, and you can't sometimes you can help facilitate that. But a lot of times you're like, mm, there's another six weeks of this. Mm hmm. So a lot of times I will give them the I, I will give them the the time like basically when whatever obscuring factors or confusing factors have led up and clarity will naturally arise. Um, and so it, yes, because that's, yeah, that's something I do for myself um, with astrology quite a bit. I'm like mm, I'm you know I'm anxious or I'm depressed or I'm mad or you know i can't uh, see or think clearly ab about x y or z it's like well and cause that's happening and you'll be fine in two weeks and right. you know and then i'm like oh yeah the two weeks is up i totally can see this clearly now and so being th that's it, you know it's a it's a kind of a ir almost ironic thing 
where I'm not telling them the answer. I'm telling them when they will when they will have the answer. Um, right. But I think that I, I think yes. it's actually pretty valuable. It's just kind of a weird sounding yeah. thing, especially like Neptune transits, man. I mean, uh, the longer term <laughs> ones, and <laughs> just that being the answer of you, you're not going to know until you get out of this period when you're going to be able to get some perspective on it. But sometimes when you're in the thick of it, when you're in the the midst of the fog, you can't see outside of it. And it's only once you get outside of that cloud that you look back and realize the cloud that you were in. And I think that's part of what you're talking about, Austin, although you're also referring to like shorter term transits where instead of like a, like a two-year Neptune transit or something, you're talking about like a Mars transit. If Mars is like making you more heated during a period of time and you're not thinking clearly because you're getting more irritated than you normally would. And part of your job then as the astrologer is giving them like a timeline on that when things are going to calm down and they're going to be able to look at it with a more cool or clear head. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I'm Kelly, I, I imagine um, you get the, you get consults every Venus retrograde where um, it's someone in a relationship and they're like, oh God, I just don't know what to do. And it's always yeah. just wait until Venus is direct. Um, you know, and I just tell people what I see over and over again, which is I see people break up in Venus retrogrades and get back together and then break up again and get back together within that six weeks. Like, mm. just sit on it until you're sure. And then, you know, um, do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that Yoda saying. Uh, and th these are brilliant points, guys, because I do think a huge amount of the help that astrology offers and and we're just conduits for the astrology itself we, we're speaking what's in the chart basically uh is the timing piece that yeah it looks like you know and some clients that are very frank you know I, sometimes i'll say i'm going to use the swear word here and they're like absolutely use all the swear words or whatever and i'm like this looks like a really shitty time for whatever reason or what have you depending on the rapport not every client i would use swear words with but you know just like throw clients. that out with a consultation <laughs> with like a <laughs> no. ten, 10 year old no, um, but you know the timing piece of this type of cycle is associated with these types of feelings, confusions, experiences, challenges, what have you. And to say it started at this point, and they're like, "That's exactly when yeah. I had issues. That's when I started thinking about I should leave my partner or my job, or that's when I found out this thing in my family." And then we can say, "Right, we have resonance now. We know that the start of the cycle triggered the start of." you know, congruent events, symbolically speaking, when is this cycle due to end? That's the time frame in which you'll be sitting with, exploring with, dealing with, and we get some kind of improvement, whether it's clarity and you can make a decision, whether you just get some distance or perspective, you know, can be a variety of things as to what happens after, but we're able to identify when the after starts. Yeah, absolutely. Basically. And that's, that's, yeah, that's. That's everything. It's very true. And it also harkens back to a point uh, that we were making earlier, which is through dialogue, you can figure out mm. exactly if you because if you can figure out yeah. what cycle a particular phenomenon is linked to when it began, then you can figure out when it's going to end. Yes. Yeah. And that and that right there is the crucial piece of why the dialogue is important and why it's more effective both for you, the astrologer, as well as for the client, and why both of you are, you are going to get more out of the consultation if you're able to have that dialogue versus if you're not. Um, totally. The amount of times, yeah, the clients will say, this is the big story, or this is the big drama. And the first question out of my mouth is, well, when did this start? Yeah, because then you connect yes. it with things like if, they're, if it's connected to a retrograde cycle, what happens is that 
in a retrograde cycle if a planet, when it goes retrograde, is close to an exact aspect with a natal planet, sometimes that means it's going to hit that. It's going to form an exact aspect three times. And so sometimes the first time it makes that exact aspect, it opens up like a sequence or a series of events. And then there's like a middle phase when the second exact aspect hits. And then there's like a closing or a completion phase when the third exact aspect hits. And sometimes you, as the astrologer, you're trying to look back and connect it to. And if you find the event that, that opened or originated the thing, you can understand when the middle point and when the end point will be for that sequence of events, for example. Yep, absolutely. Or with a time lord period. Uh, or yeah. with you know with pretty much anything, yeah. Saturn cycles like the thirty-year Saturn cycle and like the hard aspect of Saturn of like what your Saturn return was like and what the waxing the Saturn square and the opposition yeah. and the waning square and yeah. That the, we have so many great cycles to choose from in astrology. It's just amazing. Yeah, and all of those cycles though, it's like the more knowledge you have about the past the better position you're going to be in to make predictions about the future. And that is the crucial reason, ultimately, when it comes down to it, of why dialogue is important, because we just have the chart as the astrologer, and we know the cycles, but you need to fill in some of those details about what exactly happened in the past events in your life. That way we can then chart the trajectory of where things are headed, and then make some informed statements about where things will end up in the future. Yep, totally. Yeah. All right. Spot on. Um, very last thing in order to wrap up this question, I just wanted to say I've noticed over the years that there's some astrologers, because I was a little caught off guard by this when I remember sitting in a lecture a few years ago of somebody that was doing traditional astrology, and I was actually surprised at how forward they were being compared to what I'm usually comfortable with about telling clients what to do or giving them specific directives in terms of what they thought they should do in certain situations. And it made me realize that there's kind of a spectrum and some astrologers feel more or less comfortable telling clients what to do or what is appropriate in terms of that. And so I know there's probably a spectrum of astrologers operating within, you know, those certain con constraints. And I feel like while the three of us might be sort of more or less on the same page, there might be other perspectives depending on where you're coming from when it comes down to what is the role of the astrologer and what's appropriate to say to a client and how much intervention you should have in their life based on your opinion of what the astrology says. I mean, what do you I'm, I'm kind what of do you a think, listen know. first and then if you want if you want to hear what I think you should do, I'll tell you. Sure. But if, you know, um and I offer, you know, I I do um yeah. Um you know, I offer advice um from a remedial level and that can be you know, like more formal uh, ritual remediation stuff or, um, how should we say, soft remediation where it's just kind of changing the shape of what you're doing or your life or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'll give, I'll, I'll give suggestions, but, you know, after listening and if people want it, um, I don't just sit them down and be like, this is what you got to do, son. Right. What about yeah. you, Kelly? Yeah, I guess um, when you were first describing that, I was getting like internally, I was getting on a bit of a soapbox. But um, what was then the soapbox? Just the soapbox was I just don't, you know, that idea of just telling people what to do. Right. You know, that really grates on me. Where people, we, where we, th that sort of thinking. Well, we've got the chart, so I know what you should do, or I know what your experience is. That that does raise my <laughs> irritates me. <laughs> I want to like 
you know, but then Austin just put it so beautifully where that idea of listening and responding, and it is a combination of being a human and of having the astrology insight, because I would do something similar. You know, I, I might say, look, in this situation, there are a couple of ways to approach it. We've got this option. We've got that option, um, depending on what the circumstances are. Sometimes it's a bit of a brainstorming, like, you know, these are the things. One piece that I often throw in is I'll ask the client, like, you know, we've talked about how this might manifest. You could you could try this. You might try that. What have you, if it's being more assertive, if it's a, a weakened Mars thing or what have you. Uh, and I'll just say, how, how does that feel for you? You know, what's happening in your body as we talk about these options? Um, because the, the other thing I've learned over the years of consulting is people don't just do what they're told either. And so it's also that piece of, you know, getting the the buy-in or the connection. Some clients, you have a conversation about a strategy or an option that they could take to manage a situation in their life. And they visibly, oh, that makes sense. That feels, and they'll say, that feels really good in my body. I feel really comfortable about that. And I think that's been fantastic. It's hard to say whether I've told them specifically what to do or something has emerged mm-hmm. that they can try out of the conversation. Right. Um, yeah. That, and other that's, times, yeah. That's just you, a really good point, Kelly, that a lot of the the should emerges organically yeah. where it's not yeah. you saying should, but the what is clearly the right thing to do or the approach just happens. I would say that, yeah, that yes. that's... It, it just becomes clear through the, your, it becomes revealed, Austin, you're hundred percent right. It's just like, oh, well then after our conversation and your input and the astrology input, it's a no brainer that this is what you're going to do basically. Totally. Yeah. So I think that approach, if that's clear in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, there's just, um, I think being careful about not presuming on the astrologer's part, like having a sort of humbleness, I think, especially mm-hmm. in understanding astrology as an interpretive art. And that's something that a lot of us are taking for granted versus just like being careful not to get too much of an ego as an astrologer or, you know, obviously we all know as astrologers that astrology doesn't confer complete omniscience. So you Uh have to still have a little bit of of carefulness about assuming that any certain thing is going to work out exactly one way or that it's definitely going to go that way and to be careful then to frame your advice partially in that context. And I think that's something the three of us are kind of being careful about, and that's probably modifying our our view a little bit as well. Totally. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Did you have something else to add on that, Austin? Well, yeah, that's that's important, but um, not underselling astrology um, Mm, is also important because it's not anything you want it to be. It's not well, you can look at it and, you know, you, if you look at it this way, um, you know, this person's married with, with children by the time they're 35. And if you look at it this way, they're a bohemian living in the gutter, like life, um, l- n- n- there's not that much give in charts. There's a direction. And if somebody's like, yes. I have a Mars Saturn conjunction in the 10th and I want to be, you know, and I would like to be a diplomat. Be like, yeah, maybe, you know, or, you know, I, I would like, lo- you know, I, I would like to. I like to be an artist or something. Yeah. Well, you know, if the art is about like blood and guts and death and awesome stuff, then yeah. But if they're like, I, I would like to compose lullabies for a living, do you think I will be successful at that? Um, <laughs> unless, heavy metal lullabies. Unless there's something totally different happening in other play- parts of the chart, I would say, you know what? 
Uh, no. I would, I would say it more. I would say it in a different tone of voice. But I know as an astrologer that that's not in that person's life. Success, yes. you know, a lullaby artist success is not there. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about a situation like synastry. Like, let's say somebody's asking for relationship prospects and the question of what is the likelihood of success or, or failure, let's say, in a relationship. And sometimes there, well, I don't know, there's, there's just different ways that can, can go. And sometimes I, I feel more hesitation about just being like, no, there's no way that this could ever work out. Because I've seen couples or I've seen relationships where even you know difficult sinistry or whatever, where people have had long and, and relatively successful relationships. And so I sometimes just want to temper my own assumptions about it with the the possibility that things could go a different direction. Yeah, it's a it's a fine balance to strike. And I think Austin, to your point around, you know, don't dismiss the astrology. Like we don't want to be so soft that we lose the actual clarity that astrology is giving us. And the tricky thing, I think sinistry is almost like a whole, it's not it's a whole other kettle of fish, but there's so much there with the two charts. You know, sometimes I've seen sinistry pairings and I think from an astrological perspective, these connections look lovely. But what I've had to say to the client is it really depends on each of you making the choice of, you know, we want to stay together or we want to move forward um, because just having great connections is not always enough. Does that, I don't know if I, that makes I, sense. Sure. I was uh, quietly, I don't think I was doing it with my head, but um, my soul was nodding along with you the entire time. I agree. And I just wanted to clarify, I wasn't challenging anything you were saying earlier, oh, Austin. No, 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 no. I was actually well, just- I know. Almost trying to articulate or put out something. I think we're all taking for granted that we take some of those things for granted. Yeah. Well, I, again, I, yeah. as I uh, tried to communicate in my response, I think that 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 point reveals a spectrum where it's important to not uh, underestimate the astrology or pretend you don't know things that you know because that you know because it's weird. Astrology is freaky. That astrology works is is, so is still freaky. Um, <laughs> it is. But you know, <clears throat> like. You know, I I would feel um you know to take our our lullaby composer uh, or our would be lullaby composer. I feel like that would be mm, dereliction of duty if I was like, well, yeah, sure, Mars and Saturn can mean that, right? Like that. Yeah. There's there's a duty to um describe honestly what's in the astrology, even if it's not yeah. convenient. Um, but anyway, with sinistry, yes, that's a whole kettle of fish in and of itself. Um, I also, I wouldn't use a, uh, I wouldn't use sinistry very. Uh, I would, I, I would, uh, I, I consider sinistry a secondary method when I am concerned with the uh, successful outcome of a potential relationship. I'm always going to look at uh, all relevant natal factors uh, before the sinistry. If the person is in a period of time, um, if their natal chart is is configured properly, um, and uh, let's just say that you know uh, that the natal chart says like um, long happy marriage, and those factors are lit up by time lords. And it's happening now, and they're like, "Oh, I just met somebody." Be like, "Okay, um, maybe let me look at the synastry chart." But you'll probably find the person within this period of time. Like, this is you know, this is hot. Um, 
But with Sinistry, Sinistry seems to be really good at describing dynamics. It seems mm. to be better at describing dynamics than predicting outcomes. I think it's amazing for looking at how people relate. But I, I, I yeah. again, I would, um, I would put it in a in a secondary uh, or less than spot as far as you know predicting whether you know the whether the relationship will be um, successful. Successful. Yeah. I also don't like that term. Yeah. And, and the only, I think the only reason I even brought that up is because this specific example I was thinking of when I was sitting in this lecture was it was about the client approaching the astrologer for like an election for a wedding. And then the astrologer like looked at the sinistry and thought in their personal opinion that it was so bad that they said, I won't do this electional chart for you because I don't think you should get married or something like that. And I was sitting there thinking, like, wow, that's kind of like an over. You maybe I I sort of personally in my practice felt like that would be overstepping my bounds of like what's appropriate as an astrologer, an electional astrologer. But in reflecting on that, it made me realize there is a spectrum depending on how you're approaching astrology or what you think your role is as the astrologer and proficiency in it, as well as you know a number of other factors about what how you would approach a situation like that or deal with clients. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that. I I have. I don't know if it's a hard and fast rule. It's pretty, I would say it's medium. I have a firm rule uh, that I don't answer questions that I'm not asked. Right. This, oh, Austin, oh my God, man, like I love that. That I'm just so excited. I can't even get my words out. Um, <laughs> I have a thing that I, I say to clients, to students too, which is, be very careful about answering unasked questions, mm. which is, yeah, I mean, you sort of, you, we've got, that's where I think we, we can be, we've got to be very careful about just offering things we see in the chart versus the things that the clients are consciously curious about. And it's a, it's a, again, it's a fine balance between how do we pass out, you know, what is, we have that sort of duty to share versus what, we need to be asked about before we should touch on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that and that comes up a lot with like electional work because they're just coming to you asking you, pick the best, I'm gonna do this, tell me the best time to initiate this venture within this time frame that you can find. And most of the time, I mean in my approach, in my opinion, it's not my job to tell them this is you shouldn't do this. It's just your job yeah. is find the best time you possibly can in that time frame, even if from your perspective of the astrologer, it doesn't look like a particularly great time to do whatever the thing is let's say yeah you know this actually um I totally agree i but this is just getting my brain going a little bit i would be interested to see if people who have some difficulties augured in the situ in, in their seventh house situation uh or with the let, let's say they have mars in the seventh or they have Saturn conjunct the ruler of the seventh, you know, something that shows um, struggle and difficulty in the relationship area. If somebody who has difficulty like that augured, if the relationships that stick and that are actually, you know, that, you know, that that lifelong union or whatever, um, if they if they don't actually if, if bad or quote unquote bad sinistry or difficult sinistry wouldn't actually be a sign that this that that person that those people are going to be together because that is how the you know the the partnership life is described in the chart does that make sense right well no that totally happens because what if there, there's this scenarios and I've seen this with 
the person has met the love of their life, but what what happens at some point is that the love of their life like dies tragically at some point, and the person who survives in their natal chart, there was an indication for something like that, for suffering a loss in the area of relationship or marriage. But it's not that you needed to not have that relationship. That was still like, mm. you know, let's say the love of that person's life, but even if they lost that person in, in almost all instances, they still would have done it over again. If you gave them a choice and you said, make a choice between, you know, meeting the love of your life and having a relationship, but having it cut short versus not, so you can avoid that negative experience, most of the time mm-hmm. they're going to yeah, do Yeah. Or if it's the love of your life and you guys fight like assholes all the time, but it's still the love of your life. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's the other side, which is, person's in an abusive relationship and they think it's their soulmate and they're staying in it for the wrong reasons and that's tricky as well there's like weird lines and we're getting way far afield <laughs> of this question yeah but but these are really good questions because a lot yeah. of the questions i mean you know we we really appreciate our listeners enthusiasm for the question call out you know because twitter kind of blew up with all the questions we got right and a lot of the questions were about how do we handle stuff with clients and i think what our conversation is alluding to is it's very nuanced and in some situations it's really case by case. Um, yeah. Cause you know, I'm like, well, somebody in a situation where it's abusive and they're not sure if it's abuse, but as an outsider, you're like, this is clearly an abusive situation. You, you know, I may not necessarily say you should leave, but I'm going to say, well, you know, these are what you, what you're describing fits this criteria if you like. Yeah, definitely. And this reminds me because we got so many practitioner questions and because I'm seeing so many newer astrologers coming in that are starting to do consultations and are having questions like this. Um, Several years ago, I think it was in 2012 or 2013, I started a Facebook group for professional astrologers and it got way too popular and I couldn't deal with moderating it. So I closed it off. So there hasn't been like new members for years, but I was going to, I was thinking about opening it up again recently to give some younger astrologers a place to talk with other practitioners about some of these issues as well as other business issues. So I think I'm going to do that and in the description page for this episode I'll probably put a link to that group if people would like to join it to discuss some of these things. Yeah, just in order to have like a sounding board for how other professional astrologers deal with different either practical or consulting or other ethical types of issues like this. All right. So we are two and a half hours into this episode. It took us like an hour to get into the actual Q&A. How are you guys doing? We have done an hour and a half of Q&A. Yeah. Austin, I see that you, that the sun has set. He's lost his light. (laughs) Uh, So that gives me some indication of how long we've been been talking. Um, We got up to one of the, I don't want to say highest voted, but the most people liked this question by Arthur, I think, than any of the others. And I don't know if you guys want to touch on it or end on it or if we should just end on the high note of what we were just talking about how do you guys feel where where are you at um i could probably do another one or two questions i think i'd like to go get a drink um yeah if, if that if uh if it doesn't bother you that it's cocktail hour here as, <laughs> as announced by the sun right as announced by the lack of the sun uh i mean you're talking about just yeah. running and grabbing something really quick not going out for drinks and coming back. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm going to go bar hop for 2 hours while you guys feel the 2 hours later Austin stumbles back into the room. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, um yeah, I mean I'm happy to do one or two more. I I, I really like Charm's question. Um Yeah. 
around preparation. I do too. Okay, well. So maybe we do Charm and Arthur. Okay. All right. I'll be, I'll be right back. Um, but yeah, okay, Austin in, will be back in two minutes and Chris and I shall fill the airspace. You'll talk about something. Um, maybe. Something. <laughs> I mean, one person here asks, this is at Elemental Cosmos, asks, is there any merit or, or slash value to 12-letter astrology? And by that, I think he's asking about the 12-letter alphabet of that's very common in modern astrology, but it wasn't used in, in ancient or traditional astrology that like Aries equals the first house and South. Taurus equals the second house. And that's how a lot of modern astrologers generate significations for the houses is by equating them with the signs through that close like one-on-one -on -one connection. Yeah. So Shall we I talked, I guess we talked about this, this a bit already on our signs episode. Sign episodes, yeah. We did talk a little bit. I mean, the short answer is I personally didn't find it super valuable. And if I was to quote Lee Lehman, <laughs> her, her sort of approach is that she wants to sort of beat that approach out of, you know, out of being used basically. Uh, and I think it's a really lovely entry point because it kind of simplifies things, but I I know from my own experience and with students that as you get into the nuances of what sign specifically is on the second house in this chart, rather than just assuming every second house has a Taurus vibe, you will instantly transform and improve the specificity and the accuracy of your chart interpretation. So for my money as a working astrologer, the faster I could get away from that approach. I was originally trained in that approach because I, I, like you, Chris, and I know Austin too, we were originally sort of trained in the modern approach because 15, 20 years ago, that's kind of what, there wasn't as much choice as there is now. Yeah. And so- It's one of those things that's just ubiquitous and is taken for granted in most or all astrological texts written in the late 20th century. But then it turned. It's another one of those things, like with the nodes, where it turns out if you go back a few decades before that, you see it used less and less and less until it becomes like non-existent prior to like the 17th century. Yeah. So, I feel I I feel like it's a great starting point, but you can do a lot better by switching out that approach for the more chart-specific. You know, what sign is pairing with what house in this chart? Right, it's like a it's like a shortcut or a band aid. I think that often, unfortunately, gets used to not fully understand the astronomical rationale for the houses and the reasons why they mean what they mean, even though it's a completely different reference point than the zodiac. It's like the zodiac is the ecliptic and the planets moving around in the tropical zodiac, like relative to the equinoxes and the solstices, whereas the houses are like this whole other frame of reference of planets like rising. Yeah. And culminating and setting and anti culminating. And yeah, so the houses originally developed their significations largely for very different reasons that didn't really have to do with that zodiac sort of reference point or that 12 letter alphabet. And so a large part of my journey, and I think all of our journeys over the past decade or so since the mid 2000s when we all got into traditional astrology, was unlearning that approach and relearning how to use the houses by understanding what they mean inherently without having to refer to or rely on other things like the zodiac and you can actually see me like going through and processing and talking to about that more in more detail in episode 17 of the astrology podcast which is titled the rationale for the significations of the houses where i go into like a lot of detail on this issue 
That being you said, also wrote a paper that on that topic too, I believe. Yeah, it was titled "The yeah. Planetary Joys and the Origins of the Significations of the Houses and Triplicities," which you do, if you do a Google search, it'll come up with that up paper, with, yeah. and it's about the planetary joys, which was the traditional associations between which planets were assigned to certain houses, and how those assignments sometimes were the reasons why certain significations started to become associated with certain houses. Um, that being said, like I've been going through this phase over the past few months where I've been pulling back a little bit, and I don't know if it's just like my rebelliousness or my sense of um, contrarity of being like a contrarian sometimes, but I've been seeing a lot of traditional astrologers almost going too far in rejecting like the modern approach or modern meanings of the houses and asserting like the traditional meanings and the joys and stuff like as the one true approach. And I'm starting to have an issue with that because there are some instances where I think through something like the Rudyarian idea of different parts of a cycle having certain inherent meanings, that there might still be overlaps with where the 12 letter alphabet could be relevant or is relevant in assigning certain significations in a very limited sense. And I don't have as much of an issue with that as some traditional astrologers do. I just think people need to be careful not to take it too far and not to abuse it or rely on it as sort of like a substitute for actually understanding why the houses mean what they mean astronomically. And that's sort of where I've been going lately. That's kind of a new development. All right. I have like five things to say. Um, okay. Okay, cool. So uh, one, um, my experience of like um, disentangling the signs and uh, houses, my the re- which is a long time ago, uh, the result of that was Oh, houses finally work. I was, I was right. like, oh, this is they work. They, they they like do exactly what they're supposed to, rather than you know giving it some rather than flavor. It was like, oh no, that planet affects money because it's in the second house. Great, it's not. Right. It's not like oh, it's in Aries, but it's got a Taurus vibe to it. It's like no, it's right. a planet in Aries in the second house. It affects money. Oh look, you know there it is affecting money. Um. So there was that. Um, so, so it was like more more effective. Well, it's not that they weren't completely effective, but like suddenly the houses were much more effective in using them in charge delineations. Yeah, they, it was just it was finally the what I finally what they were supposed to do they did precisely right rather than uh, sh- kind, sharper kind I yeah kind of maybe squishy wiggly. Um, I think sharp, sharper is like a good keyword maybe to express or that. as as my friend Gordon would say. Uh, provides a, a higher resolution image. Mm, that's good. I like that. So, <clears throat> uh, okay. So that's thought number one, right. uh, one of five. And then two through five are are a set. Um, I'm glad you brought up joys, because if you do the if you do the twelve letter alphabet thing, you miss all of these. Uh, the you miss all of the planets' actual relationships to the houses. You miss all of the house joys. Um, you also in so in um, in Geotish, there's every planet has uh, a caraca or caracas, uh, which are indicators, and so they're indicators for that house activity, right? Each house has a caraca, you mean? Oh, one or more, right? So right. the okay. the tenth house, because it's your work in the world, um, looks at Mercury um, for part of your professional action. It looks at Saturn for another part. 
sun for the you know the the reputation part all of those are indicators for the 10th and there there are places where the indicators um overlap with the you know people call natural rulers where venus is an indicator mm. for the 7th Yes, yep. yes, Venus is. I always look at Venus when I'm uh, evaluating relationship questions. Uh, the moon is an indicator for the fourth. But just because those, uh, just because the systems match uh, perfectly there doesn't mean that everything matches. Imagine thinking of Jupiter as an indicator for the 12th. And then finally, in addition, it's sort of a, um, how should we say, uh, a dark side obsidian mirror to planetary joys in uh, in Parashara, there are uh, there are positions where planets feel like dying, right? Where they're like, oh God, anything but this. They're basically planetary miseries, and they are not the opposite of the joys as they are in some of the um, uh, in, in like in Banati and some of the medieval texts, which I don't think works. Um, but for example, Venus, uh, Venus is in her misery or feels like dying in the sixth, right? Cause the, uh, Venus, Venus doesn't want to be there, right? Venus is in her, in her mm -hmm. misery in the 11th cause it's opposite the fifth. Um, and so, you know, and then you have things like Jupiter is in his misery in the third cause it's so mundane and he wants to be doing majestic priestly stuff over in the ninth. Um, and so, you know, between the indicators, the joys, the miseries and all of these other, um, all of these other how, uh, house planet relationships, if you do the 12 letter alphabet, you miss all of that texture and all of that mm. accuracy. And why learn it wrong? Like even if it's training wheels, it's like training wheels that you have to take apart the entire bike in order to take the training wheels off. I don't think it's worth, I don't, I, I don't think it's a, a useful approach. It, it it'll keep your astrology at a very low level and then you're going to have to un you're going to have to reprogram and unthink a bunch of things to get, to be able to if you want to be able to get better than that see and what's funny about that though is you're then invoking like the indian assignments which are just like completely and radically most of the time at least half of them just radically different than any of the Western assignments, like the joys and things like that, and there's some well, the Karakas and joys are different things. They're not. They're not. Yeah. They're not two competing systems. But there's a system in Indian astrology of like assigning certain planets to certain houses, and in some of those assignments, it's the same as the Western one, and in others, it's radically different. And some medieval or Renaissance Western astrologers, like contemporary, traditional. This is sort of more fundamentalist type astrologers would reject even that and say these are the true assignments, the joys. And so the point that I'm just bringing up is I sometimes have some uneasiness when people go too hard in saying that something like astrology, which is based on symbolism and it's an interpretive art that has some flexibility, when they go like too hard or too fundamentalist about some one thing, just because there are different approaches. That can have different symbolic value. And that almost becomes the context of this question is let's say we've gotten past the point of needing to reject or or justify our rejection of the 12-letter alphabet as being like the bedrock or the foundation of the significations of the houses, because we all agree that that's not the case. But it's almost like we're moving past that point, and now we're at a discussion of can the houses have other significations or other conceptual structures that we can draw meaning from besides the joys and that basic fundamental Western approach 
that was laid 2,000 years ago? Can there be other conceptual structures? And right away, by invoking the Indian approach, your answer is de facto becomes yes, basically, because you're invoking a different conceptual structure for understanding the meaning of the houses that is not just the planetary joys. Well, um, I see what you're saying, and I think this is a subtle enough question that it deserves uh, the nuance that we're trying to give it. So indicate the house indicators are not telling you necessarily they're not that those planets are not assigned to those houses as a as a way of um uh, as the anchor for the signification of the houses they're a, a practical tool where if you are looking into for example seventh house topics then in addition to the seventh, what's in the seventh, what rules the seventh and its condition, you should also look at Venus because Venus's topics overlap with the seventh. It's not saying that the seventh derives its significations from Venus. Okay. So that's more like the yeah. idea of what, what is that called in traditional astrology? It has a name that's in Western astrology. It's like the natural ruler of a signification the natural ruler, versus yeah. the it's like the ac specific or the it, accidental. No, accidental, yeah. yeah, like the accidental ruler versus whatever the house ruler. Right. Yes. Yeah. And and to your point, Austin, I approach things exactly the same way. Where if I'm looking at relationships, I'm going to look at the seventh, the seventh ruler, what's in the seventh, and I'm going to look at Venus. And there there are techniques from the traditional literature where it's like look at the triplicity rulers of Venus to look at the different experiences in relationship throughout life, basically. Uh, and yeah, so I can see that and the moon in the fourth for sure. And I, I think that's a beautiful point that you make just because there is some crossover there because the natural signification of this planet is the same topic as this place in the chart. It doesn't mean that we'll get all the crossovers. Yeah. And we're not uh, saying that planet rules that house. That's a different relationship. No. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So let's reframe it a little bit because this question is coming from, from at Elemental Cosmos, and I'm spacing out his name, but he's the lovely guy that helped us record the um, live recording of the astrology podcast at UAC earlier this year. And he's a he's a modern astrologer, and so his question is coming from the perspective of, okay, all of you guys have that have gotten into traditional astrology have rejected the twelve letter alphabet and adopted other older forms of dealing with the house significations and deriving their meaning. And he's saying, is there, however, though, despite that, any value to the 12-letter alphabet still? And, and, and the answer that I've been coming to more is, yes, there might be some still loose affiliations, and I don't have a problem like that, like coming from the Rudyarian idea of deriving different parts of a cycle, having different meanings, like the opposition perhaps on some level, which then gets associated with the seventh house, having some loose association with relationships. The the um, let's say the waning square, which is like coincides with the tenth house, almost having on some level some, I don't want to say Capricorn type significations, but almost loosely headed in that direction. I don't have some I don't have a full way to articulate this yet, but I don't have a full reason to reject that entirely. I just think it gets abused and overused in modern astrology, but I'm open to exploring if there's anything that might be useful about that approach now that I've significantly like divorced the basis of my understanding of the houses from that. Well, you know, that's in I think that's in Parashara, the like Aries first house thing. 
that's not what you use for most things, but that's noted. That's like, that's there too. They're like, that. I mean, if that's true, if that is in Parashara, I don't know if that's true because I haven't read all of Parashara, but if that is true, then that would be the earliest origin it's, of it, that that I've heard it's of. It's either Parashara or it's Jaimini. I can look it up later. Okay. Jaimini is a little later. Kelly, what do you, what do you think? Where are you? You feel uncomfortable yeah, look, I mean, with where I'm going with no, this? No, no, no. I'm like, okay. I, I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised because I'm like, okay, you're, you're circling a little, like you've, you've kind of come back a little to maybe where you started from, but with the understanding and experience of what you've picked up along the way. Yeah, because I mean, that's uh, been my process. I've spent ten years working yeah. on a book on Hellenistic astrology and divorcing my understanding of the foundations of astrology by rebuilding it based on. This is the original system. This is where it came from. Let's see if I could mm. practice it entirely within this context and understand astrology entirely within this context. But now it's like I finished the book and now I'm able to catch up again on some of the good parts of modern astrology that I, I didn't forget about, but I'm just reacquainting myself with. And so I'm dealing with some mm. of these questions again in terms of how do we synthesize modern and ancient astrology and what are some of the pieces from both that we should retain? And so the question yeah. and the fundamental question this guy's asking is, is there any even a sliver of a little piece of that approach that should be retained? That's the question. Yeah. And and so the pieces that you're sort of saying should be approached are where maybe the like from the Rudyarian approach of like the aspect relationship in the houses to the first can kind of connect to the planetary quality in some way. I mean, that was the Rudyar's attempt to rationalize that approach. And so that's what a lot of modern astrologers will point to in order to explain why there should be like this overlap and I'm sort mm -hmm. of open to it on some level but it comes down to basic things in a practical sense like why should the third house have to do with communication at all is yeah. that coming from the moon having its joy there or is that coming from some sort of let's say broadly speaking gemini type quality that may or may not be expressing itself on some level with the third house. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is really good discussion. I mean, my I, I was trained originally, it's Gemini third house communication. Right. And then I learned about the moon and uh, particularly Deb Holding's book, uh, Houses, Temples of the Sky, I think. Um, and I know maybe she's a controversial figure to mention on the podcast. I'm not sure. Um, no, that book is really interesting to talk about the Egyptian um, connections to the cycle of the sun and how that feeds into the meaning of the houses. But when she touches on the joys of the planets there too, I thought she did, particularly with the third house, that was really, I found that really quite striking where she spoke to the magic of language and the written word. Originally, writing wasn't something that everybody did. It, it was a, a special type of skill. And that people with that had better communication skills, for instance. Uh, and she does talk about that being connected to the moon. And she even links the piece of the the travel component of the third house, you know, the short journeys or this constant toing and froing to do with the movement of the moon being sort of constantly changing, constantly shifting. Um, so I thought that that to me seemed a, a more richer or more nuanced approach to the third house. Um, but the interesting thing is we end up in the same place, whether we come at it from a Gemini or a moon thing. Right. Well, and the, the problem I have, because this is what I was struggling with, and you'll hear me struggling with it in episode 17 of the podcast, because I was working on a lecture on the Hellenistic significations of the houses, 
So when you read the delineation text, they don't talk about communication having to do with the third house. Actually, I can so think of a specific example that does in Firmicus. Okay, well, Sorry, hold I that am. thought for just a okay, second. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not <laughs> in third house discussions in modern astrology. It's very common to see the third house discussed in yes. the context of communication. The further and further back you go in the tradition, the less and less frequently you see that happening. And so when I see, while I understand um, what you're talking about, and that makes some sense to me, Kelly, I feel, I feel like that's partially on Deb's part an attempt to justify and provide more historical justification for something like after the fact. After the fact, that was more commonly done in modern astrology. And that was okay. part of what I was struggling with was trying to figure out how much of the stuff done. That I think is a genuine thing we could associate with that certain houses is based on the traditional justification versus the modern justifications. Uh, so th that aside, Austin, go. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I um, I, I didn't mean to contradict or attack your point. I just literally had a thought about that. Um, so there's a there is a combination that Firmicus delineates when he's talking about planets and signs. Um, mm -hmm. or excuse me, planets and houses, uh, and then more complicated, um, more complicated configurations that are, are piled on top of a, a single planet in a house in a given sect. And he's talking about Mercury in the third, and he gives a combination for a great orator who basically will get everything that they want out of life through their fantastic oration ability. And it is Mercury in the third in a square with Mars while Jupiter is in the first or 10th. And I was looking through this and I was like, hold the phone. I know a chart that has this. And it's Conor McGregor's chart, who is a, a fighter and a pretty good fighter, but who makes literally 30 times as much as the people who have his skill level because of his giant mouth and his ability to promote things. And so that that's right. all anchored to a Mercury in the third with X and Y conditions attached to it. And my issue, because when I was reading through the Hellenistic text and I was desperately trying to find any justification I could a few years ago for communication being associated with the third mm. house, the issue I ran into is I couldn't find ones where Mercury wasn't involved in the delineation somehow. And so in that instance, is the communication uh, like coming a... from the third house or is it coming from because from it's Mercury? Mercury? Well, but um, here's the thing. There aren't other great orator configure or combinations given by Firmicus. It's you know mm -hmm. they're like oh yeah you'll be good at math you know if it's here or eh, you'll make a serviceable scribe but the the great orator um, you know it's it's a yoga um, but combination that's given in Firmicus starts with Mercury in the third. It needs other things to fire, but you know uh, it it's it's not fair to ignore the fact that this fantastic orator combination is anchored by Mercury in the third in the context of this com conversation. Sure. I, I would just say, I would challenge anybody that's curious about this, especially traditional astrologers, to go through Firmicus where he delineates planets in all the houses and look and see if he talks consistently about communication being a third house issue when he talks about other planets being in the third house, because I had a, I had a really hard time, even though I wanted to, like trying to justify communication being a more general traditional topic in the early tradition based on those delineations, and that was what made me wonder more 
is it coming from something else? Um, anyway, that's a whole yeah, yeah. whole. Aside. No, this is. I mean, this is a very good discussion. I am <laughs> reviewing. I just bought a second um, copy of Fermius. I had the gene. I, I, can I read one sentence? Tra- I just flipped open to, yeah, you got to your- the sun. And you're both, is that what you're doing? You're both looking off. I thought you were looking at your phones. No, so you're just done no, with ne- this conversation. Oh my God, they're look- not looking at but, my phones. So, are you you're kidding? both like feverishly pulling <laughs> open your copies of Fermicus so, for those that are not watching the this video. This is what I opened to. Um, the sun in the third house indicates an evil death. It also makes the natives yes! sickly, but respectable and serious in council. <laughs> right. So, so listen to that. That's they not. They will be. Hang on. They will carry on public business, be administrators of estates, or managers of the imperial treasury if Jupiter and Mercury are in favorable. So, I would say that serious in council. I would say that council is communicative. Well, see, and that's the see that's. One yeah. of the things is what was happening is there's this whole issue because I have this whole in that lecture that I created when I was doing this, I have this whole slide about how they were associating the moon and the third house with private city cults and city administrations in Egypt versus the sun in the ninth house with the national cult. And there was this whole mm-hmm. thing about like oh, that's associating priests with both the third house and the ninth house, but that the Ninth house had to do with like the national cult and like national holidays, whereas the third house had to do with the local ruler cult and the local holidays, and some of the priests being associated with both, and and all sorts of like weird things that were relative to like first century BCE Greco Egyptian culture, and it's yeah, it's it's really complicated and like hard to parse a bunch of those significations because you have to understand the cultural context, and that was something I went through when I was writing that chapter of my book. Uh, Hellenistic astrology, the study of fate and fortune, available at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Austin's yeah, we holding it up. That one off the shelf. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 have, I have you and Firmicus and Parashara and a few other things within within easy reach. But uh, Chris, right. that's an excellent point. The the lo- the, the local point, cult because- third mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. the the national cult ninth, I think, is a really good distinction. Also, mm. I think that, um, and we're getting pretty far afield, but I'm going to go with it. Right. Um, but whatever, <laughs> people love our digression. Yeah. If people are almost, this almost longer, half okay, the yeah. listeners really like our digressions, <laughs> like they they've sat through like three hours of this and they're going to tune. Yeah. Out well, and after. and those that don't like tuned out a half an hour ago. Um, but I also think that um, the 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 religious activity that you see with planets in the third delineated by Firmicus is also because I think there there's a whole sign aspect to the ninth. That planet is looking right at the ninth, and so right. the ninth receives you know receives its effulgence. <laughs> see, I mean that's that's so interesting well, though because then that could then tie it back to at least where Rudyard was trying to go in rationalizing it, where he was saying that the first house is like the conjunction in the beginning of the cycle, and then you have the opening sextile and the opening square at the third and fourth, and then you have the opening trine at the fifth and the opposition at the seventh, and so on and so forth. So this is Rudyard like trying to rationalize the modern. 12 letter alphabet and to tie together the different levels of symbolism in a chart. But I don't know. There's stuff. What were you going to say, Kelly? I was just going to say the the cult business. I mean, Dea and Deus are the names that Maternus gives for the third and ninth, which are, you know, not uncommon in his time period. Right. God, to have God this- and goddess. 
Exactly. The god and goddess, the masculine sort of god figure in the ninth and then the, the feminine goddess figure in the third. Um, and I guess for me, I was like, well, that makes sense if it's got this sort of goddessy image and some of the delineations Firmicus is talking about is, you know, with Venus there, you know, you're the, like the priestess in the temple or something. Right. Um, so you get, I guess that feminine energy and of course the joys are the sun in the ninth and the moon in the third, but that doesn't have anything to do with writing necessarily. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I tried, I was trying to squeeze out at some point that like, well, temple scrap, temple priests were sometimes or often literate and they were like copying over texts and that was an important role of the temple duties and I was like trying to pull yeah. something out of it if I could but it almost becomes not relevant in this time where we're trying to develop like what is the conceptual structure underlying our understanding of the houses in modern times that's like true and is timeless on some level yeah, this is a very good point. I feel like this is going to give us all, funnily enough, plenty of food for thought and more Mercury reading and research to do. Yeah, and we don't have to answer it now. But like I said, episode 17, I had like a two-hour discussion where I was trying to process and deal with this question. So go back and listen to that if you want even bigger discussion yeah. of it. Okay. Okay. Should um, we, are you guys ready to move? I see you're both still reading a copy of Firmicus, so I don't know <laughs> if I should drag us on yeah, to the Yeah, let's the do another last. question. I mean, we, we should. Okay. We're going to have to wrap up probably, I don't know, in the next 10 or yeah. 15 minutes. Okay, let's do two so, really fast. One of them is okay. Arthur's, Arthur Liponowitz at on Twitter at Lip and Bone. So he says, where do the three of you disagree the most? And you guys, before we started, said we wanted to do this question, but you couldn't really think of areas where we disagree. I actually have one that I wanted to bring up okay. that might make for a good brief discussion. Oh my. And I love how you spring us on, spring this on us in the live and you don't yeah, just, us. Yeah, I didn't it's like great. prep you for it. That's, that's no, good television. It's, it's all right. Um, it's not oh, a big a deal. You're a smart producer, Chris. It's an interesting discussion topic. So it actually comes out of the signs episode that we did, the two episodes we did on the signs of the Zodiac episodes, 175 and 180, where we had a little bit of a disagreement at the beginning about, you know, I, I outlined it as approaching it from the conceptual structure of the four basic qualities of the signs of the zodiac, which are like the, the traditional planet that rules the sign, the quadruplicity or modality of the sign, the triplicity or element, and then finally, traditionally, the gender of the sign, which is masculine or feminine. But you guys both oh, were more or less yeah. on the same page about saying that you don't like saying masculine or feminine, but you prefer to say yin or yang. And there I'm were, glad you brought this point up, actually. So there was a follow-up part of that, which is that because there's been I, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Oh no, I saw that you, you accused that. me of cultural appropriation on Twitter, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> minor detail. So I want I, I want to bring I, it up because that has always been my too. objection yeah. to it, as I don't feel like I've ever seen anybody come up with. I'm open to it. I understand the reasons why people want to not assign masculine or feminine to the signs, but I've never found anybody that's come up with a good alternative solution. And I don't like the yin and yang one because one, and I confirmed this actually talking to Jeffrey Kotick where he, I asked him, he's like a scholar of Chinese astrology that I interviewed last month. He said yin and yang is, is traditionally gendered in Chinese philosophy and one is explicitly associated with masculine and one with feminine. Right. Well, so, so I need to be able to using defend those. myself here because I have been slandered by you, my friend. <laughs> right. So here, well, here's- let me, the... let me just finish the right. thought of the initial objection. <laughs> the issue I have is just I feel like by taking that and, and I did use the term appropriating because on some level it feels like that to me, but I'm not trying to go too far with that, uh, that 
that whatever loaded words that means. My issue is just that I feel like that masks it by using a foreign philosophical or conceptual term like yin and yang. It masks the issue by using terms that we're not as familiar with and have a different um, sort of conceptual or rich philosophical background, even though ultimately on some level it might still mean masculine and feminine. All right. And I worry that that's just masking well, the I, issue instead of finding a true alternative. Well, I will uh, so explain go, go. to you why you're incorrect. And okay, so <clears throat> and, and you have more of a background in Chinese philosophy due to your background in martial arts. Yeah, I've been so doing Chinese martial arts for it. twenty years. You have to learn these terms if you want to learn the techniques. Um, you sure. can't study so Tai Chi. The thing that people call the Yin Yang is actually called the Tai Chi. When you study Tai Chi, you're studying the interplay of Yin and Yang. Right. So um, the issue here is, and why I prefer it, is that yes, yang, when yang is manifest as gender, it is masculine. When yin is manifest as gender, it is feminine. However, these are meta terms. Yang means day and up and outward to exactly the same degree that it means masculine. And so it is not the term masculine, which only refers to masculine. It is any time uh, uh, yang refers to anything that is yang. Um, you know, light is more yang than darkness. Rising is more yang than falling, right? And so it is, even though it involves the masculine and feminine, it is merely involving them as one of a th of 10,000 instances in which yang could occur. And so it is inherently a meta term rather than a specifically gendered term. When I say, if I were to say uh, masculine, that would only refer to what is masculine. That wouldn't necessarily refer to rising or day or any of the rest of it. And so uh, yin and yang are much they're much more meta terms that refer to you know literally uh, li uh literally half of reality at once and so even though it might refer to masculine if you were to pick a gender for that term it is not the same thing as reducing a sign to a gendered expression Sure, but don't I mean in the Western tradition, those two terms are understood to have that broader meta meaning, especially being derived ultimately from Pythagorean numerology of like masculine being associated with odd numbers and feminine being associated with even numbers, which is where that comes from. It's understood that there's interchangeability with like day and night also being associated with those two or different things like that. Well, um, but that's but so that's like that's clearly not the case from um, the way that astrology works in that era, because you have Mars, which is a masculine planet, which is assigned to the night sect, right? And so you can uh, you well, there's tricky reasons for that. Like that's a whole right, but that that is also true. And so if you're tr if you're depending on one instance of Yang to imply the meta concept of Yang. You've created an extra step to get to the meta concept, which is what you're trying to refer to in the first place. Yeah, and I understand. I could totally concede that your your point that it's more 
um, accessible, that you're jumping straighter to the underlying meta concept by using those terms. I just worry that it's still substituting something that's completely not absent of gender, and that in actual like Chinese philosophy, traditional Chinese philosophy, that gender might be a more integral component of that than it's being taken for granted of sometimes, which could be problematic in some ways. If you're just substituting one sort of genderization for another on some level, even if it's removed a little bit, that's that's all. What what do you think, Kelly? Where you where you at with this? Um. Well, I think there's some really good points here, and it's really funny that you brought this thing up because I was actually thinking about it when I was in the kitchen the other day. Because I, you know, in practice, I usually use the phrases feminine or masculine, and I often clarify with a client or with students that what I mean is sort of a tone that is feminine in nature, that I'm sort of explicitly not describing something that is only female, but more the receptive, introspective type of experience, if if I use that that phrase. Um, I think that yin and yang, obviously, Austin, I don't have your background there. And when I hear yin and yang used a lot in modern conversation, it is often alluding to that dichotomy of differences, you know, that even though it doesn't only mean masculine versus feminine, it is often invoked in that kind of context, I guess. Um, the nuances that you just shared where the young means like day um, and bright as much as it means male or masculine, sorry. Um, I really like that. I was like, oh, I learned something there. That's fantastic. That gives me a better understanding for the yin and yang approach. Um, I think it's a really tricky debate and it's coming from a place I think for all of us where we're trying to be thoughtful and considerate, but also clear in the message and trying to find the right words to convey these tones that we're trying to discuss. Yeah. I mean, there's just complicated issues that astrologers are starting to talk about and deal with more in the past decade or two involving gender and involving yeah. contemporary discussions about that as a tricky topic. And astrology itself is or is in the process or will grow and change and adapt to the cultural sensibilities of its time as it always does and as it always has on some level. There's like some part of it that stays consistent, but there's some part of it that's always in flux, adapting to the culture of its day. So it's just a genuine discussion that astrologers are having and kind of need to have now about what's appropriate or what is truly reflective of our current understanding and culture in terms of, of certain terms and things. I was just trying to explain because I didn't want to be painted into the position of being the person that was wedded to and was still promoting an old and outdated viewpoint. And that's the only reason I wanted to bring this up and, and push back on that a little bit, because I was a little concerned that by not adopting the yin and yang thing, that it could put me in, a, in an awkward position. But I wanted to explain the only reason I didn't do that was because I was concerned that it might be masking the issue rather than truly coming up with an alternative which I'm otherwise open to. Yeah, well and also, you know, um to come back to the the cultural appropriation thing. Um like I use those terms cuz I've done a bunch of Chinese martial arts and studied the Yijing for a long time. Um and right. so, you know, when I say yin and yang, that's where I'm coming from. Like if you're not familiar with those terms other than mm. just casually, then you probably don't really you know, if you haven't studied that, then maybe that is appropriation. You know, I, 
Yeah. Whereas it's like I haven't, and that's why I would feel awkward phrasing it in that way, just because that's not part of my otherwise background or underlying philosophy or, or understanding. Yeah, and and I, you know, I suppose my my teaching it that way and thinking about it that way um, is obviously a result of you know what I've done and studied. And so right. of the yes. things that I'm familiar with, I'm like, oh, that is the best match to that. Yes. And that's, that's I think, key here is that, Austin, you're using terms that are fully authentic and have integrity for you because of your background and familiarity, not just with the words, but with the whole philosophy. As you said, your background with martial arts is, you know, longstanding. Uh, so, Chris, you're kind of saying that you don't have that connection and therefore it feels inauthentic or somehow not right for you to use those types of, of terms. Yeah, it's just that I just wrote a book on like Greco-Roman astrology and I'm very familiar with and I'm comfortable with understanding and discussing you know, Western astrology as originally developing in a Greco-Roman, Egyptian, and Mesopotamian cultural and philosophical context. But if I was to take, and I've rebuilt my astrology largely in that context over the past 10 years, but if I was to take this other concept or these words from Chinese philosophy and then place them into that, it would just be notable to me that I'm taking some foreign philosophical concept that I don't fully understand and placing it into a, a different or foreign philosophical model that I am familiar with. So that that was just the uncomfortableness that I've had in wrestling with and trying to think about this issue and try to come up with something that I'm comfortable with that would be genuine to the philosophical systems that I have any sort of familiar with, familiarity with. Yeah, is that a good? Was that a good controversial issue? Like it was like controversial. Well, we talked it out without necessarily throwing chairs I at feel each other. Like we're all still friends after right. and. I also think too, like, you know, to Arthur's question about what do we all disagree about the most, in the grand scheme of things to disagree about, where I feel like we're in a very Virgo place where we're discussing words and the words have very powerful meaning, but the the concept behind, I think we would all have agreements around what we might define as yin or feminine or masculine or young, if you like. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Are we are we so, cool, Austin? I didn't mean to. I, I wasn't know. charging you with cultural no, appropriation you, so much as no, I was saying. No, I know you. I you totally feel... did that on Twitter, but it's Twitter, and it doesn't. It, it yeah, doesn't yeah, matter. I remember the tweet. I was, now. I was I'm traveling, like, oh, and I was like, "Really, Chris?" I was like, "He didn't mean it that way." Well, and, I and that was that was literally I... that was literally as much mental space as it took up. Okay. Yeah. Good. I just wanted to throw that in your face right. a little bit. So. All right. All right. I deserved that, and I appreciate it. Um. Good. All right. Like was that it. sufficient? I think Arthur got what he wanted. I think it'd be yeah. very <laughs> He wanted a little laugh. I, I honestly didn't genuine... know what we were going to talk about for that question. I was confused while you t uh, why you took it, but well done. Well done finding, I mean, I took it, <laughs> finding the controversy. I took it, it just tied in with an issue that was like a lingering thing for me after the Zodiac signs thing. Because if you go back and listen to that episode, it's like I set that up at the beginning saying, here's the four qualities. We're going to consistently talk about these. And I would at the opening of each sign, say it's a masculine sign, it's a feminine sign, and you guys would switch and start saying yin and yang. And so there's a noticeable difference it, between us when we're it's talking about yang, Chris. Yin and yang. See, I can't even pronounce it correctly, <laughs> so that's why I shouldn't be using it in any context whatsoever. Yeah. Oh, so I just beautiful. thought it would be a good 
continuation of something that was left, I felt no, I, I, I that was that was totally worth uh, rounding back on again because I I because oh, I wanted to great. I wanted to articulate why I was choosing that because I thought right basically the way I see it is that um, just as we have the two, the three, and the four, right? What we're looking at are basically number n- number based concepts. And that with two, we're looking at polarity. And I feel like, or at least for me, um, yin and yang is a, a quicker access route to the essence of polarity and thinking about polarity. And that uh, masculine mm. and feminine, just like diurnal and nocturnal, like require an extra step because you're you're picking an instance and then you have to go to the general and then understand it. And by not... Um, by not using words that are that uh, that locate a particular instance of a yin yang relationship, you're saving a step. And so, anyway, I appreciate you bringing that up because that that was that that's why I use it because I think it's more efficient. Yeah, and it's funny that what you're describing is a sort of numerology underlying it, and that was as I wrote in my book in this chapter what all the historians think the underlying motivation for the Greek concept was was Pythagorean numerology. That assigned a certain quality to ones and a certain quality to twos, mm-hmm. and it alternated, you know, odd and even. Although, ironically, then that still creates an issue where you're creating a system based on duality or what you could otherwise phrase as a sort of binary understanding, and then that becomes, you know, difficult because then the modern discussion is about whether binary constructs are are still appropriate in terms of framing astrological. Delineations and some of the things associated with that that become problematic. Yeah, well, I would say that thing numbers which can be divided by two can be meaningfully thought about in terms of a binary. Uh, it's not useful to apply a binary to thirteen or twenty-one. Mm-hmm. No, um, but you can do that with twelve. Sure. And yeah. All right. Yeah. Anyway, there was one more question we were going to take. I think I believe from Charm Torres. If you guys are still up for it, why not? Let's do it. All right. Final question. So this is from at charm underscore astrology on Twitter. She says, can one of you run us down your on your preps? How much time does it take you now compared to when you were first starting? Uh, can be for a natal reading or for an annual update? So she's saying, how long does it take you to prep for an astrological consultation, both in terms of when you were first getting started versus now at your present present state? Uh, do you guys prep? Do you have prep time? Some astrologers don't prep, so that's first I, uh, yeah. like premise of the question. Do we are we all on the same? Page I, I'm on that we team prep? prep. Team prep. Okay. Sat- Saturn and Virgo conjunct yeah. the North Node is on team prep. Yeah, I think we all prep. I just know some astrologer like Rick Levine says he doesn't prep. He just casts the chart and like goes, and that's well, that's his approach. Rick Levine is. I know a other astrologers. Creature. Yeah, I know other astrologers on Rick Levine's level, like from that. Um, I don't know that generation or that level of seniority or experience that are pretty uh would just sit down and go right basically okay so how much time do you guys take to prep so i take less time than i used to right um yeah okay so i think we all agree across the board i think everyone's gonna say we probably took a lot of time to prep at the beginning and we've over the years winnowed that down to whatever our current situation is when i first got back from project hindsight in 2006 my prep time became like an hour and a half because I'd learned all of these new technical factors. And so I would have to sit right. with the chart and go over everything, be like, oh, 
is is Jupiter occidental or oriental and is um yeah. and now I can just see that stuff at a glance. Um my level of prep and I I, I imagine Kelly and I are going to be on the same page here is pretty much or is mm, greatly dependent on the task that I am called to do or the question that I'm called to answer. Like some some mm. questions are really specific. Um, and some are just like, yeah, I don't know, can we look at stuff? And it's like, yeah, we can look at stuff. I always like sit and get to know the chart. Um, and some charts take longer to get to know. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I look at a chart, I'm like, this doesn't say anything to me. Um, like where's the where's the beef? Right? Where's the where's the like, you know, the the heart or the soul or you know, where is it? And then some charts that's you know, it that punches you in the face. Um, it's, it's, I I would say to a certain degree, it's like detective work and it's, it's how long does it take you to solve the mystery? Mm, So it, so it varies for you. Yes, it it varies. I would say like, give give me a range, let's say an hour to 15 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in that range too, Austin. I was like, we're we actually going to tell. I love this because it's like, you know, people sharing what they do. But yeah, I usually allow about 45 minutes of prep time in the way that I structure my schedule. And sometimes I'll sit down and I'll feel like after 10 or 15 minutes, I'm like, okay, yeah, got I got it. this. And other times I take the whole amount of time and that's, you know, I just, I keep going basically, or I'm still digging if you like. Um, and that, you know, when I first started, I think I would take three or four hours to prep a chart. And the guideline that I often give to students is to think about the length of the session and then aim to have your prep be no longer than the length of the session that you're not going to start there, but that's what you're trying to work your way down to, you know, cause in the beginning, sometimes students will take all day or, or all weekend to prep for a session. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that because what you're doing in those early days, you're calling it chart prep, but you're actually studying still. You're still learning what does it mean to have this configuration because you found it and then you've gone and read three books about it so that you're trying to confirm or clarify that you know what you want to say about it. And over time, you, with your experience and with the ongoing learning and professional development you don't need to go and read three books necessarily. You're like, I've seen this configuration before. I know I have a sense of it and I'm going to bring that and sit with the client and we're going to, you know, go into the dialogue with that. Right. Because you literally have, after you've done enough consultations, you've seen somebody that has Mercury and Aquarius in the 10th house. And so you have a few anecdotes about like, this is how it worked out in this person's life. And so you might say something about that past observation you made to the current client to see if that's somehow relevant in their experience as well. Yeah, or you might see a particular aspect configuration with that Mercury. And instead of having to go and just double check with three or four authors, you've already got like a mental drop down arrow of four or five different interpretations um, that you can offer. Right. So I think in the beginning, some of what we call prep is it's, it's that sort of very practical type of study. Whereas as you get more proficient and more experienced, you're really just doing the prep and that that does take up less time. Yeah, definitely. So, and everybody starts out doing a lot and some people start out doing written reports, in which case you're spending potentially like a day or like days working on it before delivering it to the client. 
but eventually you want to work your way down. And I worked my way down to an hour, uh, but that's primarily because I was almost doing zodiac releasing in every consultation, and I would want to print out the periods for the person and write notes in them next to them about which one should be more active or more positive or more challenging, and then I would send that to the client ahead of time. And that would usually take me about an hour. And if I wasn't doing that, I might work it down to like 30 or 45 minutes of just casting the chart, glancing at the transits, what the current perfection year is, um, and things like that, and then just force myself to go into the consultation with those basics down. But that's something every astrologer has to work themselves up to through repetition and practice. Totally. One thing that I've found to be of great value is to just look at a chart, memorize the positions, you know, see see what there is to see on first glance at least one night before so that you can sleep on it and that whole chart is in your mind while you dream and then when you look at the chart the next day or at least for me, I find that the chart opens up to me if I've like had a mm. sleep on it where it's like, it's mm. already, it's already in there. And then I can, you know, and then I can, you know, do whatever with it. I'm sometimes nervous about that, that I'm going to spend, if I spend too much time, like on a previous day preparing instead of the day of the consultation, that it won't be as fresh in my mind. I sometimes have that nervousness about the podcast episodes as well, where I'll put off preparing the outline until the final day, because then everything's as fresh as possible, and then I'm excited and like can jump right into it versus having prepared before. But I could understand some instances where actually marinating on it a little bit would be would be useful. Well, and um, I think that my method or the the thing that I was talking about is actually in alignment with that because I don't do all of the analysis on uh, uh on the taking it in to just marinate. I, I like just take in all of the positions and then I'll do all the mm. technical stuff after waking up. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, I don't I don't yeah. I don't like yeah. get down on it and then go to sleep. I just take it all in so that I remember all the positions and can think about the relationships and then let that, you know, I I I you know, whatever I put that I install that software in the hardware. Yes, have, and it's right. running and in the background. And then I do the, the hard analysis um, after waking up. I have this image of you printing out the chart and then placing it under your pillow the night before and then waking up uh, with it after being fully refreshed. That's actually an awesome idea. I haven't done that, but there's it's no beautiful. reason not to do that. It's worth trying. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, little little yeah, dream totally. incubation goes a long way. Right. Well, and I think that point is a really beautiful one, Austin, because- I know with clients who I have worked with, you know, maybe they come every year for an annual check-in or we've done a number of sessions over a long period. You get deeper into a chart the more times you revisit it. So, you know, that idea of a quick glance and then a revisit before the session, but you but also to know that if that client comes back to you, you will go further into the material because you've had longer with it. And I think that's just the nature of the type of work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. I think we did it. We're at three and a half hours. This is one of the best episodes of the Astrology Podcast I've ever recorded. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to put that out there right now. Uh, high five. I'm going to let you, Chris, I'm going to let you finish. But, okay. 
Uh, I wish we could all do just the jumping, like freeze frame high five right now to end this episode, but I think we will just uh, call it a day. So people should check out Kelly. You have a new podcast. I want to plug the Water Trio podcast with two friends, and I'm sure you have a link on your website, kellysastrology.com. Austin's yes, got a new podcast you. coming out, which he's going to post very soon, hopefully by the time we release this episode at austincopic.com. And of course, you're listening to this podcast uh, from my website, theastrologypodcast.com. So thanks a lot, guys. And thanks to everybody who sent in questions. Like we got to about yeah. half of them. Do we even get to half or what? Uh, no, not even. Maybe a third. All right. Well, maybe one of these days we'll come back and try and answer the rest or get to them on Twitter or what have you. I'll put a link to the original thread in the description page for this episode where we ask those questions so other people can go through and read them as well as find if they want to connect with some of the people who ask these questions. Uh, but thanks everybody so much for sending them in. Thanks to all the patrons that support the Astrology Podcast through our page on Twitter. Appreciate it uh, since you made this episode possible as always. And uh, yeah, thanks Austin and Kelly for joining me. This was great. All Always right, a pleasure, guys. Fun. Thank you. All right. Well, we will be back again in two weeks. We're going to record the forecast for 2019 on December 28th. That's going to be exciting because we're going to look at the astrology of the entire year ahead. I already did a little bit of that with the Denver Astrology Group meeting last week, and there's some really exciting stuff coming up. So I'm excited to get into that with you guys in a couple of weeks here. Yeah, it'll yeah be good. me too. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the podcast, and we will see you next time.